This is a Heel Turn Collective production. Welcome to the Heel Turn Collective Podcast. Welcome back. It's episode number seven of the Heel Turn Collective Podcast. I am your local savior and your just your hero mm-hmm. at all things sports and music. Lance Augustine and I am joined once again by my boy Shane Riley. What's going on, Shane? Um, I am again sunburnt. I think this is the second episode out of our seven that I am mm-hmm. sunburnt. Yeah. Um, really batting a thousand on this whole, uh, you know, uh, me versus the sun sort of thing. So absolutely. Doing hey, all right. look, yeah, I mean, Put you'll take it. Right? Me. We'll be all right. <laughs> There could be a lot of other things wrong, but a sunburn, I guess you'll take. True, at, true. Especially at this particular moment in time. But yeah. uh, yep. this is the Heel Turn Collective Podcast. And in case you're just joining us, uh, last week we had a hell of a show with our boy Sam Romesburg. He's going to be a regular contributor on the show. And Shane, I mean, how did you feel about Sam and coming off that episode? How did you feel uh, You know, the reception was towards that episode? Uh, Sam's the guy. Flat out. Everyone knows it. You and I know it. The people know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I can yeah. really see Sam kind of stepping into kind of a off-the-bench rock sort of persona um, yeah. for the Hill Turn Collective here. Absolutely. And it's really cool to, to feature some of our friends, but also guys that have just everything, guys and gals, I should say, mm-hmm. that have everything going on. Uh, yep. We always like to support local friends and, and whenever they got things going on. So make sure you check out that episode in the archives along with the other ones we've done. We've had a lot of great guests, but Shane, I don't think any of them, uh, they all pale in comparison. And I, I don't say that lightly. Mm-hmm. This week, we got a huge show. Yep. Who are we talking to this week, Shane? Uh, we're talking to the old uh, Andy Adkins. Um, he's the vocalist Andy of the Adkins. band of Plea for Purging. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, really instrumental for me. And Shane, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in, in the scene that we grew up in, uh, it was a real great, uh, informative thing, man. We talked mm-hmm. to Andy for about two hours, and you'll see, you'll catch the whole thing here. And I mean, it's, it was just a blast. Mm-hmm. Andy's a great guy. Um, he lets us know about plea during plea and then after plea. So we really got, uh, I mean, we really got a chance to shine Le- and, and ha- learn some stuff that-, that learn some stuff that we've never heard of before. Yeah. Um, it- Trust me, you're going to want to listen to all two hours mm-hmm. because we there was a lot that we went into and and Andy went into a lot that a lot of plea fans might not know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Shane, I mean, before we get to this conversation, breaking news today, <sighs> breaking news hot off the presses, Patrick Mahomes signs a 10-year, $400-plus million contract. Well, Your initial thoughts. So the, the, on- final, the final thing right before we got there, I actually got a little notification for it, it is $450 million. Mm, 450 um, that's a lot believe, of cheddar my friend i believe 140 some get uh you know move some some cents and pennies around there 140 mm-hmm. some million guaranteed um oh, jesus christ and there is like, no there's no cap tie so there was there was a there was a whenever before the figure was announced there was a there was a possibility that there was going to be like a percentage sort of thing where whatever the the salary cap is no matter what it mm-hmm. is Mahomes is going to get a percentage of that, and it's going to kind of be a moving variable. But it's locked and loaded, four hundred and fifty million, the biggest contract in sports history, Jesus not football Christ. history, sports it's, history. Well, I mean, we went into it before, and I remember mm-hmm. on this very program, 
you said, what if Patrick Mahomes gets $250 million? And I said, ridiculous. I expect him to get $450 million. You called me crazy, and here we are three weeks later, and I'm just right on the money. Um, what can I, I say? I don't know how you do I, it. Like, I don't know how you do it. It's. I mean, c- come on. I was right on the dime. Uh, if you don't believe me, go back in the archives. Listen to the episodes. Yeah. Here the receipts are there. The receipts are there. Absolutely they are. I said $450 million, Hit the nail right on the head there. You also did um, call the guaranteed number and that there wasn't going to be a cap tie as well, if I do recall. I mean, really, just some real f- psychic shit going on here at the Heel Turn Collective. And uh, I, all I got to say, Shane, time. yeah. So we've been talking a lot about this, buddy. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've been kind of going back and forth. Is Mahomes worth the money? How much is he going to get paid? Now we found out. Now we found out 450 plus, you know, probably incentives in there, you know. Oh my. But yeah, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that too. I'm sure there's incentives. Absolutely. So, uh, like hey, he won us another Super Bowl, here's another, you know, 20 million dollars or whatever for Christ's sake. I'm excited to see what what this what this contract ends up being by the end of the 10 years. Yeah, I'm, it's going to be I mean there there's a lot to break down in it and I'm sure we will uh, in the weeks to come, but I mean just right off, hot off the presses, just right away. You know, the thing, the thing um, that kind of gets me with it is they were super, super tight on money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, like an extension in itself isn't going to be, like, can free up cap space because it's you know stretching the money over a longer period of time. But this yeah. isn't just an extension. This is blockbuster. Like, yeah. So where where did they find the extra money to pull this off? That yeah, like, I, they, they didn't get rid of anyone, right? Like in the last, no, I, I mean, not that I, not to my knowledge. I mean, look, I, at the end of the day, the NFL needs Patrick Mahomes more than it seems like Patrick Mahomes needs the NFL. And I'm sure they wiggled some money around in there, you know, because you can't go from $170, whatever we reported here on the show yeah. that they had in their salary cap. And then all of a sudden pay this guy 450 million. Yeah. All, now, of, a sudden, he, all, is, all of a sudden he is a, he is a, a $45 million check coming to his doorstep every yeah, season. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like um, you might think this is unheard of, but it's really not, you know, people have gotten 10 year contracts before Donovan McNabb got one, mm-hmm. but I forgot a lifetime contract from the Packers. And uh, we saw that turned out. He yep. was gone five years it, later. Uh, Vic um, got a 10 year contract. Yeah. Vic. Yeah. Michael Vic got a 10 year contract. So these kind of contracts now people playing the entire thing, that's a different story, but we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the contract in yeah. general. You know, um, do I think Mahomes is in Kansas City for the next ten years? It's hard to say with fr- the way free agency is and the way mm-hmm. quarterbacks tend to deteriorate. Who knows? You know, he could play six seasons and be like, "Yo," you know, because I'm sure that there's some kind of language in there. They can move him around or something if if need be. Yeah. You know, because they have to I mean, offload a lot of that contract. But that's the thing with that with that sort of contract, he owns the Chiefs now. Oh, absolutely! Like he, he, th- this is very similar, like uh, almost a lot how like um, like Manning and Brady kind, of, or maybe not necessarily Brady, but at least Peyton Manning. Like Peyton Manning owned the Colts. Yeah, like, exactly. He was he was the general manager. He was the judge, jury, executioner of the Colts, and I think this is really putting uh, Mahomes in that same in that same wheelhouse. Yeah. Hey, I don't think you're wrong, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of this is look now for, for what we could probably say is Andy reads the rest of his career. He, okay. You're now tied to Patrick Mahomes. Yep. You are now, this is your make or break. Okay. Mm-hmm. If, if he succeeds and we win more Super Bowls, Andy reads a genius. Mm-hmm. If he flutters out and only lasts five years, you know, <laughs> I, like that's, 
that's what I'm saying about Patrick Mahomes. The unknown is so mm-hmm. high on this kid. Yeah. Because he could do nothing for the rest of his career, and people would still put him up as one of the greatest of all time. And I yeah. it just, I don't know. I can't. It's, I don't think you can crown somebody that three games in. I just, I yeah. or three seasons in. Yeah. Excuse me. I, I, mean, I can't that, even. And that's the thing. Also, to not get twisted, this is one of the few things in the in like between the two of us in football that we actually strongly agree on. Yeah, that, that Mahomes is good. He is who 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 it seems he is. But man, it's. It's a little early because I yep. always use this comparison and people think I'm crazy, but I always use it. When Aaron Rodgers won that first Super Bowl in Green Bay, people said, oh, this is the dynasty. He's going to win again, mm-hmm. again, again. Aaron Rodgers only has one Super Bowl. Yeah. He only has one. That's Aaron Rodgers. And everyone Rodgers. is – that's Aaron Rodgers who will probably go down as the greatest to ever do it. Yep. Patrick Mahomes, he has a Super Bowl, but people crowning him for, oh, man, I could see him winning five, six rings – you know, you know how like once in a lifetime Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and the Patriots are. Yeah. This is once in a lifetime. Which this is, isn't twice. You know. Yeah. I don't. Which I'm curious. Like, you you kind of bring, you kind of allude to a good point on that. Is like in the football world, is the concept of a dynasty? Have we been spoiled by that? Where it's yeah. like whenever you think about dynasty, it's like oh, it's gonna be like the Patriots. You know, where they get to. What like what what was that absurd number where they got to like seventeen AFC championships in twenty seasons or whatever like yeah some astronomical number like that um and I'm curious like if as overall like football fans if we've been spoiled by that where yeah. like anytime you think of the concept of dynasty it's like oh like it's just gonna be you know it's gonna be the Chiefs it's gonna it's gonna be the Chiefs steamrolling the entire NFL where it's like yeah like. That might not happen, though. Yeah, exactly. Like, because especially because if this contract becomes cost prohibitive for the Chiefs, mm-hmm. you got to realize, man. Like it, it's like you can't you can't it, go out and get big time wide receivers. Yep. You're not going to be able to sign Tyree Kill to an extension. Yeah, it's way more. It, it could and, potentially be a way bigger like hindrance than. Absolutely. So that, it's like so it'll be interesting to see can Mahomes kind of pull the team from the shit. Like we have seen quarterbacks do in the past, mm-hmm. can he just carry them on his back? I mean, right now the AFC's wide open. I think the uh, I think the NFC's the more competitive division, but yep, or competitive conference. But uh, yeah, I don't know, Shano. It's going to be an interesting couple of it's months. Good one. Another thing, another yeah. kind of uh, thing to leave that one on is we also don't know what the salary cap's going to look like in the future. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's because, another thing. I mean, you discussed I, it on the show already. Mm-hmm. Having that salary cap where the quarterback doesn't count against well, it, you know, not even necessarily that, but as a, as a, as a whole, um, we don't know how seasons being affected by shutdowns and whatnot. Will the salary like? Can the salary cap go up next year? Like, yeah. the realistic possible. Yeah, like, that's a tough question because you're not going to have that. Tight. It's already yeah. tight now, money wise. Like for a lot of teams and like there's a chance that they might have to figure something out going into the next couple seasons. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the great unknown right now with, with the C virus and, mm-hmm. and everything. It's really just wreaking havoc against the path. And the only thing we can do is just try to save, uh, you know, kind of save face and put a fucking mask on for Christ's sake <laughs> anyway. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we just wanted to kind of talk about that at the top of the show, you know, yep. anyone that's joined us before knows, we're uh, music and, and sports guys, and we talk about both on here. But today, we got a very special episode. We don't go into much sports, yep. but we do talk with what? a fascinating guy. We don't, and, we don't go into any sports. 
It's yeah, we don't go into any sports. It's just straight music talk, but he's a fascinating guy. So all we can ask is buckle your seatbelts because the next two hours are going to be a couple of wild ones. Shane, you yep. ready to throw to this? Let's roll. All right, man. This is our interview with Andy Atkins, the former vocalist of A Plea for Purging. Let's talk some shit and get our asses whipped. Let's roll. And now we are joined by former A Plea for Purging frontman, motorcycle aficionado, and of course the mayor of Party City, Andy Atkins himself. Andy, what's going on, brother? Yo, dudes, uh, man, just partying, really. Lots of chores, <laughs> lots of parties. <laughs> well, I mean, chores and parties are two things that I feel like... Uh, <laughs> kind of go hand in hand i mean am i right or, or am i am i right here yeah dude i mean i feel like life is basically just a, a chore until the chore is over with and then the end of that chore is party and then you get back into choring and it's a <laughs> cycle that never ends <laughs> until eventually you die absolutely yeah, <laughs> yeah so True words never spoken, but uh, I know for me and Shane, this is a great honor to have you on mm-hmm. here. Um, we grew up kind of in the uh, Christian hardcore scene, so it's it's really cool to have somebody that was almost like a figurehead um, when we were kind of coming up through here. So we really appreciate you uh, joining us today. And, and I think the only way to start this episode and the only way to kind of get into it is kind of just to rewind it all the way back to the beginning. Um, I knew uh, I actually played with Plea. In 2006, in a high school gym, I had a Dean Dimebag signature, and I remember Andy walked by it and said, "Wow, man, there's going to be some major shredding going on today. It's not what happened." But that is that sounds exactly like something I'd say for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, but uh, I mean, before that, uh, Plea put out an EP. Um, I don't believe you were the vocalist on that EP, right? The very first EP they put out, I was not on. It's just a self-titled, like five song thing and that's Mm -hmm. uh yeah they had a dude that a kid named justin that sang for him here in town they actually asked me to be in the band it's a long story but like they wrote a song and blake the guitar player did the vocals on it and they were like shopping that song around just to find a vocalist they asked me to be in the band and honestly i just bought a brand new this was in 2005 I bought a brand new Scion XB. I'd never owned a brand new car before. Um, So I got tied into this like crazy car payment and I was working a job and I was like, there's no way I can join a band and start touring because that that was their plan. And I was like, there's no way I can do that. I just got myself into a crazy car payment. And so they (laughs) got they got a singer and I actually really loved those first five songs they did with Justin. I think his vocals are like so cool. Like if you, which stylistically completely different band, but if you listen to like what like knocked loose is doing now with like a super high pitch yell uh, Mm -hmm. over like a metal band, that's kind of like what plea was doing back then. Only it was, it was not near as heavy a music, but um, I just thought his vocals were really cool dichotomy on top of the kind of music they were playing. Mm. Um, But he ended up quitting because he was going to college and stuff. And six months after I got my brand new car, I wrecked it and totaled it and the insurance paid it off. Um, so then I joined her band. <laughs> uh, hey, look, Holy hey, crap. This is a sign from somewhere, right? Maybe <laughs> this is what's supposed to happen, right? I mean, come on now. Um, that's, that's really cool. I mean, 
uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask you how you met the dudes in the bands and things like that. Um, let's talk about a little bit, Andy, about about some of your early musical influences. Like, mm-hmm. have you always been um, kind of into hardcore and things like that? Like, what what kind of bands um, really influenced you early on, and then wanted you to kind of play, you know, this heavier type of music? Yeah, I mean, starting out, you know, as a kid, I was listening to you know anything on the radio. Like, as a little backstory, I grew up in a town. Like I was born in a town that had about 10,000 people in it and then moved to a town that had 450 people in it. So I'm from a pretty, pretty small little sect of Tennessee. And, um, this was before the age of the internet, you know, I'm pretty old, I'm 38. So there was like, I didn't get a laptop until I was in my twenties. You know, I didn't grow up (laughs) with a computer in the home. So like the only way to find out about music is through friends or like 120 minutes on MTV and, Mm -hmm. MTV two and that kind of stuff. And, uh, so anyway, like I was listening to the radio and then like my sisters started getting into like Jane's addiction and she went through all kinds of phases, but like grunge and then heavy metal and reggae and like everything she bounced into. I did too. You know, she was like six years older than me and I thought she was the coolest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so Pretty much I owe a whole lot to her for like broadening broadening my horizons and musically. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like um, you know, I started getting into punk rock and metal probably at a pretty early age, like 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, like junior high mm-hmm. years. Um, but all of that started really with like grunge being like Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and Jane's addiction, and then figuring out punk and figuring out hardcore and metal after that. And yeah. Um, then I like, uh, got into the church, uh, for a while. And like with that, you know, you're always trying to find like something that isn't, you know, the Gaither vocal band or whatever. So, um, I like found tooth and nail and, and face mm-hmm. down. And from there it was like, you know, a whole new world of music that I'd never heard. Yeah. That's yeah, that's so that's actually funny that you, that's actually funny that you mentioned it because um I was kind of talking to you off air. I uh I was in a band that was on Strike First, which is the face down subsidiary, and Shane's actually in this band called Tiger Wine. They're signed to Tooth and Nail right now. So it's kind of weird how all this kind of comes full circle. But uh, me and Shane actually talk a lot off off air about how um those are legacy labels where, you know, those early kind of Christian metalcore, like they were the ones signing them and, and things like that and you know you can hear a lot of those early influences in a lot of those bands so it's kind of cool to hear that you were kind of getting into that with the church scene because I, I can relate to that for sure you know I, I I did the same thing I went to church and then you're just trying to find bands that didn't kind of sound like you know newsboys and stuff like that you were like right I want stuff that has a little bite to it you know something that's uh, a little heavier and then like every other metalcore kid I got into as lay dying and then it was off to the races from there um, but, uh, so, I mean, you meet the guys in plea, you, you know, they, they kind of, they're, they're fitting the vibe and stuff. Is that about the time that you start, you know, writing a critique in mind and thought and things like that? Like, are you starting to kind of talk to Jason Dunn a little bit, you know, when you guys first signed to face down, like, were you a part of all of that conversation? Yeah. Like when I first, so I, I got in the band, um, and we then toured like on our own with no label support, no booking agent, no management for um, probably a year, I guess. Mm. And we put out an EP with me on it. Um, and then we basically shopped that EP, um, not so much to get 
signed. Like back in the day, Jason, uh, on the face down website, he ran a, like a distro as well. And he mm-hmm. was like, uh, distributing unsigned bands. And I think like some of the blood and ink bands were on there and he was just, mm-hmm. you know, putting out people's music, not so much that was on face down. So I actually reached out to Jason to try to get on that distro site, not so much to get signed. And, uh, he was like, Hey, I'm not actually going to be running that distro anymore, but, uh, I think you guys are cool and let's do it, you know? And <laughs> yeah, which is Hit cool. you with the, I'll do you one better. <laughs> yeah. Which we, we weren't like a hundred percent, like, you know, I know that's every ba- band's like dream is to get signed, mm-hmm. but like we weren't really just trying to make that happen in the beginning. I mean, we were doing already what we wanted to do, which was write songs, record songs and play those songs live. Um, And so we had a little bit of talks with a couple of different labels before signing to face down. But um, I mean, as you guys know, like everybody in the world's got nothing but great things to say about Jason and Virginia Mm -hmm. and Dave and Shannon, like that whole crew, um, it are just so insanely beautiful to work with. Um, and so after talking to him on the phone two or three times, man, we signed and, uh, he signed us before even seeing us live or anything. And he flew out and got in the van with us for two or three days and rode around to some shows. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that shows some, that's just some great, you know, mm-hmm. that just shows some great wherewithal, um, just as a label owner, you know, you, you kind of want to get to know these guys on like a central label. Uh, speaking of like that, uh, that early touring you guys did, I, I might've mentioned this, but I actually played a show with you guys in 2006. Uh, you were on tour with once nothing and bringing down Broadway. And it was you guys. And I remember you had the rack tuners that had like the lights on them. And I just was thinking to myself, I was like, that's so fucking cool, man. Why is somebody this awesome? And I'm terrible at this. Like this, is, this is like another level. And I remember just seeing you guys that night and just being like blown away. Like this is unbelievable. You know, like, it's something that, so you guys early on for me, definitely uh, were one of those bands that kind of stepped it up a notch. But yeah, I just uh, wanted to bring up that little tidbit that I remember when you guys were kind of touring uh, no booking agent or anything like that. So that's really cool that uh, you guys kept it up all that time. You know, I, I got you, you. You kind of alluded to it with there being other labels that you were looking at. Um, if if we may ask, what other labels was a uh, was on Please Radar? Uh, like amidst that Facetime discussion in the very beginning, like right around that same time, we uh, Bl- Jamie from Blood and Ink was talking mm. to us, um, mm-hmm. which like killer killer label, killer dudes. Yeah. Um, I know they've like switched hands and stuff since then, but um we were talking with him a little bit and then like, this is not so this is a non-official official. Um, in the beginning I was really just looking for a booking agent, not so much a record label. Mm. So we had reached out to Ash who, um, ran Sumerian, uh, mm-hmm. but also was like a booking agent for yeah. at the time. I think it was TKO. They've had like a billion different names of their agency, <laughs> but, yeah. um, so I was trying to get some um, booking agent help and he had started talking to me about us signing with Sumerian, but told him that we weren't looking for a label at the time. And mm-hmm. then he ghosted me and never talked to me or put me on any <laughs> tour ever. So, Jeez. you know, like 
uh, you know, that was as much talk as we had with them. There wasn't an official offer, but, um, that went sour real quick. Um, and then, you know, years later when we like had the re-sign with face down, uh, we shopped to a few labels and talked to the only talked to a few different labels, but the only one we talked to a little bit, like more seriously was to solid state. Um, Mm. but that wasn't really Mm -hmm. working out. And we just went back to face down because we love Jason. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I can really attest to that. I, I played uh, Strike First Night at Face Down Fest 2011, and I met Jason Dunn for the first time. And dude's like, dude is one of the the purest dudes you could ever meet. And I, I'll never forget the interactions that I had with him and everything that he did. So, um, big shout out to that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so we're we're kind of climbing up. You know, you do the critique in mind of thought. I've actually heard some. Uh, I've heard some kind of interviews before where you've talked about where maybe. Um, you weren't so stoked on that record. Maybe, um, is that kind of true? Like, like, were you maybe not as stoked on that first record that you guys ended up did coming out on, on face down? Um, yeah. I mean, how stoked were you on that first record? Did you think that it really put a foothold, uh, in the industry for you? Um, I mean, like, I, I have to be thankful for it. I have to be thankful for Jason, like, uh, you know, even giving us a chance off of those first two EPs and, thinking that we were good enough, like that style that we were doing then was kind of just like a mishmash of a bunch of different stuff. And we didn't really know what we were and we were trying to find ourselves. So like, I feel like the songwriting on that first record, um, we were still just really trying to figure out who we were and what we wanted to be. Um, lyrically, like I'm not insanely happy with it. Cause like, half the record is some of my thoughts and half the record is some of John's thoughts. Cause John was the, the original songwriter of the band, um, okay. which is, which is awesome. John, the stuff that John writes is awesome. Um, but like it's, it is weird. Like just singing someone else's lyrics as opposed to your own, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. There, there are bands that do that and that's cool and nothing against them. But like for me, the whole point getting into, uh, music and art is to, to express yourself. So if you're going to be the guy singing, you should be like singing the stuff that's out of your own brain. You know, that's the way I feel. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Especially in a genre that is like yelling and screaming. I don't know how you'd be able to like pull the passion out of something that you didn't write. Right. Like, you know, interesting to me. <laughs> um, yeah. so like, you know, it was a, a mismatch of, of my vocal, my lyrics and John's lyrics and like, mm-hmm. The main thing, if I had anything to really critique on that record, though, is like I was not prepared mm. vocally, like lyrically mm-hmm. or vocally. But like my vocals are like just so subpar on that. And um, like I'm I'm not like a technique dude. I'm not I, I don't know anything about like Melissa Cross and like technique <laughs> and this and that. And there's people that go to voice coaches to me heavy metal and like punk rock and hardcore like if it makes sense to me it's just you're passionate about something and you're yelling as hard as you fucking can to get the point across right Um, yeah but with that there still has to be practice in the fact that you're training the muscle that's in your throat to not give out and to um not screw you over and so i just didn't practice and i didn't uh hone my craft or whatever i don't it's hard to call it a craft but you can just really (laughs) tell on that first record that i was not prepared and we layered a whole lot of vocals to try to make it 
work and it it just it's not a good product and I'm not proud of it but also like I look at everything that I've done in my past and it's like just building blocks to get me to sitting right here in my garage in my house talking to you guys right now you know there we go um, yeah yeah, everything is everything's kind of a stepping stone, and you're right. Uh, while you might not be proud of it, why the final product isn't something that that you became, um, you always got to look back at that first record and be like, you know, um, it was a, it is a different time in my life, you know, and, and doing these kind of things is really super cool. So, um, I mean, that record for me, like I remember the first time I heard the slaying of the serpentine dragon and that opening riff. I can just remember being like, this is the craziest shit like ever, you know, and. <laughs> Um, it wasn't until like kind of you got into de- depravity. Uh, I saw you guys kind of at Cornerstone and things like that. Um, so so like going from you know what what was the general consensus from uh, critique of mind and thought into like the writing process for de- depravity? Did you guys notice that you uh, changed anything in the songwriting? Uh, how was it kind of maneuvering into? Because let's face it, from critique of mind and thought to depravity is kind of a it's kind of a shift in sound a little bit, not really, but it just seems like you guys are more mature songwriters at that point. So like when did the writing process for De- depravity kind of start? And then where did you see you guys going, um, leading up from critique of mind and thought into depravity? Uh, yeah. I mean, like we just, you know, we, from day one, when I joined the band, pretty much like a few months after I joined the band we hit the road and we started touring nonstop. So we toured, 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 did the EP tour, 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 did critique tour, 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 and then started doing depravity. And so like all that time on the road, uh, just, you know, forced us to grow in many different ways, like immaturity and, uh, our views and what I wanted to write about lyrically and, um, musically, you know, like if we're out touring and we're, um, being influenced by all the bands, you know, it's, you're going to be influenced by the things that are around you. And mm-hmm. so um, there was just, you know, we're touring with heavier bands than the, the stuff that we started off playing that whole, like um, everybody compared what we were doing to like Iron Maiden or something, or Judas Priest, like that kind of guitar stuff. Um, we're like one of the only bands out doing that thing. And like at the time, and it just felt like we we're kind of out on an Island and you know, the longer we toured on it, the less we liked playing that stuff. And we liked, uh, getting heavier and playing, you know, like a show where there's aggression and heavy music. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying we we're just only trying to appease the crowd, but you play a breakdown and you play some heavy stuff and the kids are going crazy. Um, that's a really fun show. And when you're playing a bunch of metal and everybody's just standing there looking at you going like, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> Like that's less fun. And that's, that seemed to be like what the first few years were like is people Mm -hmm. just like not knowing what we were and what we were trying to accomplish. So I don't know, like we didn't make any obvious decision. Like we didn't sit down and say, Hey, let's become a heavier band. But like, I remember the first two songs we wrote like past critique for depravity was motives and prevaricator. Those are both on depravity and they were just heavier. You know, they still had a lot of that melody stuff that we did in the beginning, um, but they were just way heavier. And when we wrote those two songs, we were like, this is what this is what we're trying to do. You know, mm-hmm. let's let's chase this. And from then on, I mean, like it was trying to 
chase that? How do we how do we become the heaviest band we can be, but still have our brand of melody? You know, because we weren't trying to be just like a deathcore band. You know, we weren't trying to be yeah. on effects. Like that stuff's <laughs> cool, but like we were trying to be our brand, but be it the heaviest way we could. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So go. So you kind of like half answered the next question, kind of leading up into um, the last two records there. But like, for I guess two things. One, like, what was the big? What was there another sh- like? mental shift that kind of happened with marriage of heaven and hell um both like musically and lyrically um and were you guys aware that you were writing one of the heaviest records ever written uh going into that record um i mean like the that whole vibe and um you know the concept or the the lyrical direction was just a product of our surrounding like i said a minute ago like uh, you're not, you're going to be influenced by what's going on around mm-hmm. you. And so we keep getting deeper and deeper into um, like the Christian music industry, um, yeah. you know, whatever that is like, you know, we're signed to a Christian label. We're on Christian tours. We're doing scream the prayer. We're playing every big Christian festival. Um, and you just start like, questioning what all that stuff means to you you know mm-hmm. um yeah. like you know, it's crazy that there's just a an industry there's like um commerce built around this safety net of christian music and mm-hmm. uh you know the that just gets shoveled down the throats of uh youth group kids you know because it's you know as long as it's sold at lifeway christian bookstore it's totally okay. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's good or not. It's just Mm -hmm. the, you know, and that's the crazy thing is if you put my lyric, you you put my handbook of lyrics in some mom's hands. Um, and she's probably going to be more disgusted with some of the things I said than what, um, Slipknot saying or something, you know? Um, so that, that was heavy, but yeah, I mean like we, it was just, you know, without trying to like call out any specific specific bands or anything, um, you know, we just saw a lot of crazy shit, and yeah. uh, I had to talk about it because that's everything we are. Is we, you know, when I'm dead, I hope that the one thing that people could say about me is that I was authentic and honest mm-hmm. in yeah. everything mm-hmm. I've done. So I think one of the cool things that that record does for me, at least, is like. <laughs> not only the songs are good, but the overall composition of the record is good. Um, like it's like a super, super cohesive, like it flows really, really well. Um, whether it be like some of the kind of interlude like things, like some of the soundscapey type of things that you did as like atmosphere and whatnot. Um, like what, like, was there anything that kind of, was it just like the overall concept that kind of did that? Or like, was it just kind of you guys just kind of being like, we're going to go balls to the wall on this one and just kind of, like get a little bit artsy with it or did it just it, kind of fall into place? It's very intentional. I mean, like mm-hmm. if you go, if you step back to depravity a little bit, we tried mm-hmm. getting there on depravity, you know, and like there's some of those interludes and there's like an intro and an outro. And like it was, it, that record was sort of a concept, but then we dialed it in better on marriage of heaven and hell um, mm-hmm. with like, and now in 2020, like, it's more about songs, you know, records aren't really like 
as important anymore. But back then, like a record, a full cohesive CD that you pop in from front to end, um, if you can if you can digest it as a whole, um, mm-hmm. to me, like if you make it right, it can be some really incredible piece of art as yeah. as mm-hmm. a as a whole. Um, so it was, it was scrutinized, man, the whole time from beginning to end. We we really worked hard on the pre production of that record and went into the studio with all of those ideas for the um, interludes and stuff and. Um, you know, we really agonized over like the song order on that record Mm -hmm. and it all just telling a story from beginning to end. And Mm -hmm. I, I like it when people realize that and notice that, um, it, it's not just a collection of songs, but it's like, yeah, I mean, artwork in itself. I think a cool thing about that, like, especially what was that? 2000 was that, that was 2009, right? I think sucks. depravity was nine and marriage was ten. I think. Um, yeah, marriage. Especially was for, yeah. especially for, a, like a, a record from that genre. Not a lot of the kind of like, more I don't know if you would call it like indie, like smaller bands or like those like that aren't like stadium bands or whatever. We're doing a lot of that conceptual stuff. It's, it's, so that was the thing that always has stuck with me about that record is that it's super super ahead of its time. Um, in that like overall composition of the record sort of thing. So that was like, I think it's really, really sick that like, <laughs> um, yeah. that you, that you kind of like ignore or like that you guys were kind of aware that like this would take us to the absolute next level. And then you accomplished it. I think it's a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, something, something you learn early on in music. And, and we all kind of know this is back when they had the vinyls. I mean, they wrote records like that because you can't skip songs and things. Mm-hmm. So they wrote, records to be digested as a whole it's not meant to be picked apart but like since you guys have been doing that you know you guys started doing that with um depravity and then the marriage of heaven and hell um it it was something that in the hardcore scene you don't see a lot of because dudes are just worrying about man like what because you're right andy it's how many breakdowns are in this song how many sing-alongs do we have and it's not that you're all thinking about that you know but Mm -hmm. it's in the back of your mind so you're not maybe thinking about you know composing an entire record that just has song after song after song that just really flow together you're more worried about well man if we play this breakdown you know right here the kids are going to go wild and 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 andy you're completely right you hit the nail on the head man uh those shows are great when kids are you know bouncing around and stuff but i am i'm old school in the sense of i love those records those conceptual things that are just um that, you know, just really flow together. And, um, I kind of wanted to dissect a little bit of heaven or the difference between heaven and hell. I kind of wanted to, um, marriage of heaven and hell, marriage of heaven and hell, (laughs) man. Um, but uh, I kind of wanted to dissect it a little bit because those were the lyrics that, that you started writing that really clicked with me, uh, a little bit more because I was, I was in the same place you were, I was kind of stuck in between like, you know, what, what kind of Christian am I and what am I seeing in things like that? So um, I know you're not trying to call out any bands and I'm not trying to make you, t- you know, um, but we know like those er- that early 2010s, you know, there, there was that influx of all kinds of Christian metalcore and, you know, what was kind of, what was true and, and what wasn't, you know, but um, really right off the bat with the eternal female, you kind of get, get right into it. You know um, you say things like I am the reaper and things like that. Um, and, and there's an, a, a couple of other cool lyrics, um, you know, your God's not real and things like that. So can you break down, especially that song, uh, 
the eternal female. Um, you did, was that a choice to have make that go first and really hit because of the lyrical content? And I know you have a little bit of the sound clip to start the song. Um, was that intentional in the sense of like, Hey, we're going to start this record off with a bang. Here's what the lyrics are about. And this is what the whole record is kind of saying. Yeah. I mean, pretty much, uh, like it was the, you know, the starting point for the record of like, Hey, this is what this record's going to be about. I'm about to rock your world or rock the boat kind of thing, you know, like, yeah, I'm about to say some shit that you may or may not be happy about. Um, Buckle up. Was pretty much (laughs) that, that song for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, I guess me, I'm, I'm actually, when you started talking about it, I pulled up the lyrics so I could like look at it and, and Mm -hmm. speak to them. And it's funny for me to like, think that i'm so badass that i can straight off the bat say i'm the reaper i will be the demise of your reign <laughs> like man i really thought i was hot shit you know but um yeah man i don't know like i just saw like all day every day i saw people selling uh their version of god mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and uh it just didn't feel right and and so uh, instead of us selling what we thought God was, I was just going to call out all the things I thought were wrong about not only others, but ourselves too. Cause mm-hmm. we were, yeah. we were yeah. a part of this conglomerate, you know, yeah. and I'm not saying face down. I'm saying like the industry that's surrounded, uh, around selling and commercializing the name of God, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important, though. You know, a lot of times bands will kind of stray away from that, man. Maybe we'll just go along with the status quo. We'll just stand up here and say, you know, uh, it's it's all for God and things like that, which is fine. I think there's a lot of genuine people in, in hardcore that, that do that. And I think that there's a lot of guys that kind of, you know, have it inside them that this is what they truly believe. But I, I, I'm in agreement with you 100%. I, I wasn't around it as much as you were, obviously. But um, you just see it. You can almost see it. I remember... Um, me and Shane saw a couple of bands at, at Cornerstone and we just, we just saw right through it. You know, we just saw like, what, what are we doing here? Are we here to glorify God? Or are we here to sell t-shirts? You know what I mean? Are we here to have people, you know, buy a bunch of records so that we can, you know, make money off of this single like idea. And so uh, for me, um, your guys's lyrical content, you know, being kind of the figurehead of, of where my headspace was, I really appreciated songs like the eternal female and songs like shiver that real. I mean, I mean that powerful part in the middle, man, like, uh, you know, if I were God, we'd all be dead, you know? And, And so I think about that lyric. I think about that lyric all the time because I think that that is something that, um, is very true. Cause so many people, um, like to think that, uh, it just have their own line of thinking, but I mean, you right there are just saying, you know, Hey, if I was God, we'd all be dead because you know, we're not living up to those standards. I mean, that's what I'm taking away from it. Um, a song like shiver, was that something that, uh, I know you guys recorded a video for it. Uh, the funniest video ever, I think so. Uh, but it was cool to kind of see you, uh, conceptualize that. So like the, the process going into like a song like shiver where, okay, these lyrics are going to be really kind of, you know, because when you say stuff like that, people are going to automatically assume, well, this guy's not a Christian. What's he talking about? You know, and things like that. So um, did you notice any blowback from from the lyrics from um, 
like the eternal female and shiver um, into like the Christian community, quote unquote. Uh, did you notice any blowback from the lyrical content on the marriage of heaven and hell? I think more so than not, we were supported, you know, mm. like, I mean, mm. uh, there might have, there were probably like a few youth group kids that were like, really, what are you trying to say here? You know, like, <laughs> Um, yeah. Why don't you say the name Jesus in your songs? Like that's the that's the stereotypical like uh you know you're at creation festival and some kids like you don't have the word Jesus in your mm-hmm. record not one time, you know? Can you answer that? Like, like um huh. that's that's the normal like Christiany thing. Um mm-hmm. but like honestly, we were very surprised at how well received it was there. It just seems like there were a lot of people and kids and, uh, you know, uh, people were like dealing with these same issues in their head, you know, Mm -hmm. and questioning, uh, God and the validity, you know, the, 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 uh, reality of it all, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so like, I don't know. I feel like we had a lot more um, support than being tore down. And then they were like, you know, it's obvious that if you listen to the lyrics, we're um, talking about some specific bands, kind of, you know, like we dance around that a little bit. And I try not to be too honest and just vague about it Um, (laughs) just because I don't like to stir the boat. But like um, this is a real honest thing that really happened. That record came out and I saw Tommy Green, you know, who we were really good friends with Sleeping Giant. We toured with those dudes uh-huh. a ton. Uh, I love and respect those guys. And um, we were just a completely different band than they were. And maybe we didn't see things exactly the way they saw it. But, um, dude, the first second that I saw Tommy after that record had came out, he came up to me. He hugged me. He said, I respect everything you said in this record and think it needs to be said, and I'm so proud of you. And, like, that was huge for me because I was so worried, you know, that, like, we're basically writing a record about all of our friends, you know, (laughs) all these bands that we've toured with. And there were other bands that really did not take it near as well as as they Mm -hmm. did, you know. But, like, for for him to, like, give me that cosign and tell me that, like, he was supportive of it, um, meant a lot. And just the fact that Jason, when we handed over the masters to him and said, Hey, here's our new record. He didn't call me or email me and say, no, you know, because like he could have very well said, Hey man, you, you can't put this out. Yeah. You know, That's- there's, there's a lot of really controversial and heavy, uh, sentiment on that record that could probably get kicked out of stores and stuff you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so that's that's a pretty interesting like that's a great story by the way Uh, tommy green like i i met tommy once um i was i'm actually friends with laz who played in leaders on face down and he was torn with uh sleeping giant and i actually got i went and talked to the dudes in the band and super nice guys like Tommy Green's definitely one of those dudes that is definitely down with the G.O.D. And I'm, I'm cool with it, man. Like, I'm, you know, I'm down with it. But that, but that's really cool how, like, you know, it wasn't so much like, uh, 
you guys weren't worried about kind of the backlash. I mean, obviously in the back of mind, back of the mind you were. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's kind of cool that you just kind of took a brash stance towards it. And we're just like, you know what, we're going to write a record that we want to write. We're not going to kind of adhere to anybody's standard. So it's really cool, uh, to see that Shane, do you have any like a bow you want to put on the marriage of heaven and hell before we start talking about, uh, the final record, the, uh, life and death? Um, it's not really necessarily a bow, but there's a really funny story to that, that tour cycle from that record. Um, I have no idea if you'll even remember this, Andy, but uh, there was a show in Lemoyne, Pennsylvania, at the Champ. Um, mm. It was you guys, uh, no bragging rights, Gideon, um, and Take It Back, I think. Take that, it back. That was not. Yep. Yep. Yeah, take it back. Yeah, that was. Um, but there, it was a kind of. Looking back now, it's kind of funny because I guess it was like um, I believe because I'm like we're not from Lemoyne, but. I guess that they were like the city was like kind of protesting that venue or something. Um, but there was like to all those bands, like which is like a lot of those bands that was like crushing at that point in time. I think there was like 70 people at that show. Like there was like no one there. Um, and I'll never forget like uh, it was you guys started playing Malevolence and you did the whole like circle pit thing. The like, or no, uh, the stage dive thing is what it was. And, uh, um, I'll never forget, like, I think it was one of the dudes from Gideon jumped off the stage and like, there was no, no one was even in front of the, like, of, in front of the stage and just like crushed some random kid I was standing next to, um, which wiped him out. Yeah. Wasn't not really a bow to anything, but just a funny story from the out al- that album cycle, but proceed. That would, have been, that would have been the life and death album cycle, Shane, but yeah, you're uh, totally wrong. Uh, yeah. I'm standing here looking at the poster right now, but you know, yeah, well, uh, you win some, you lose some. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it up as an old <laughs> anyway i mean we're gonna get into the record right. here yeah, go I, I will say i remember that show which is crazy because you could ask me about one that i don't remember but i remember that one just because we <laughs> we only played the champ like two times maybe so yeah i actually um you guys played it with uh the plot and you it was the plot and you you guys uh i think your memorial was on that uh i saw you on that touring cycle i think that was before the marriage of heaven and hell it was like the plot and you your memorial and, and some other band but uh yeah it was at the champ and that venue's all right i guess but <laughs> um yeah kind of transitioning into uh the life and death of a plea for purging this one right here andy i gotta say man this might be one of my favorite records like probably top 20 favorite records of all time. Uh, the thing that for me that really hit me the most, especially on this record was you guys definitely you, your lyrical content definitely went, it was figuratively and literally the heaviest record that you guys had put out. And I say that because you have songs on there where you're talking about not so much things about Christianity, but you're talking about your own life for kind of the first time and uh, kind of take us through the writing process of the life and death of a plea for purging. Like, was it something that like you guys knew going into it, it was your last kind of hurrah or, um, how did you, how did you approach that record? Um, if it was your last, if you knew it was going to be your last one, like what were kind of the thoughts going into that one? Uh, we, we didn't write it, um, as a fell farewell. Like we didn't say, Hey, this is going to be our final record, but also, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd been touring since 2006 and that came out in 2012. Um, and like, it was just the life and death, I guess the overarching theme was, 
you know, some kids that set out to uh, take over the world and, and spread this message and have a good time and party while doing it. And then um, there was a whole lot of life uh, lived during that time, a whole lot of lessons learned. Um, and uh, it turned out to be as much heartache as it was fun and awesome, you know, and it, and yeah. there's like a, a sliding scale there of, uh, you know, not everything is going to be a hundred percent joyful all the time. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, we didn't write it knowing that it was going to be the last one, but we also were, uh, the, our band was a core friendship before it was anything else. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, those dudes started the band without me, but when I joined the band, it really, solidified to be something uh very special as far as a uh a community you know and Mm -hmm. we started out with five guys and lyle left the band but when lyle left the band uh he's still so very much a part of our family like he's literally blake's family he's his brother-in-law so he's still (laughs) like uh you know very close to all of us and then when tyler joined the band and took over for lyle Um, he was a really close friend that played in all the local bands around town and he left the band to start a family. So there was no, like, uh, you know, there was no, no, um, negativity when he left the band. Right. And then when he left the band, we decided that the core four of us would continue on as a band without bringing anyone, anyone else. And so the reason I give that whole story is just to say like how special it was that all four of us were friends that entire time and remained friends with the two guys that came in and out of the band. And so through our entire existence of a band, we were very candid and open and honest about uh, our intentions and what we wanted out of the band and what we wanted out of our own lives. And if one of those four people were going to leave the band, the band wasn't going to be a band anymore. And so like we had that conversation over and over and over and it was getting more, uh, serious during that writing cycle. Um, but it still hadn't been decided. Um, so we wrote that record and, um, you know, after that record came out, actually it was on one of those, it might've been that, no, it was actually when we were on tour shy halud. That's when we decided to, to call it quits but uh you know aaron had actually said hey man i'm thinking about hanging it up and we were like okay um me and him were at lunch and he told me and i was like okay the band's done and that's how we decided the band was over but um lyrically you know to get back into the core of that question it's um we just i personally uh dealt with a whole lot of heartache and crazy shit during the the previous record cycle um to get real honest, like my mom committed suicide. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, my dad had died, um, which I wasn't very close to him, but he was a drug addict alcoholic for the entirety of my life. Um, and that caught up to him and he had complete, uh, organ failure and died. Um, oh, wow. and all of that happened within two weeks of each other. Uh, on Thanksgiving is when I found out my mom uh, died. And then two weeks later, we had a headlining tour with like, uh, winds of Pl- not winds of plague. Um, I don't remember who we were out with. We were headlining over, uh, 
somebody. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I had to go out on that tour and tour manage a tour and uh, and play a tour every night right after all that stuff happened. And, um, you know, I mean, like, of course, the band would have, like, been okay with me canceling that tour. But, you know, what I would have done is just gone home and, and sit there, you know, like, uh, it was just more cathartic for me to be out. But mm-hmm. anyway, like there, that, so there's a lot of that on that record. There's a lot of me talking about my family and talking about me and my personal life and uh, a lot about the band and thinking that that dream or that thing that we were chasing was going to be one thing. And it really turned out to be something else. And, um, you know, I don't know. It was just very, we didn't have to, we didn't go into that record either with a plan of like, Hey, we're going to talk about this on this record. Um, they were just like, Hey man, uh, say what you need to say and be who you need to be. And we support you. And that was it. And also this, this is the first record we didn't, uh, go whole, hole up in a, uh, a specific place together. Like the two or three records before that, we all like went and lived at a place together and wrote a record for like a month. This record, we were all living our lives in Nashville and Hmm. just getting together, uh, periodically and writing songs together. Um, so without any, outside influence from the guys i was just at home alone in my own head writing my own songs you know Mm -hmm. so that that had to be really cool to kind of be able to experience that for the first time i mean you had probably written lyrics on on previous obviously you'd written the lyrics on the previous records but that had to have been cool um kind of being able to sit down and just be in your own head not have any distractions and things like that uh you brought up your parents um, and that, that song on there, my song was the first song that I remember listening on the record, hearing those lyrics from the, f- the first two lines and just thinking of how miserable this has to be to write about this. Like I, I'm not close to my family either. I completely understand where you're coming from. You know, I don't have a loving relationship with my parents or anything like that. Um, but to, to know that, you know, they'd be gone within two weeks of each other, man, that's some heavy shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, for me, man, like I hear stuff like that and I'm just like, you know, this is why I'm into stuff like this. This is why I like darker, you know, kind of soulful stuff like this, because it's it's all about the human condition and songs like that. And, you know, I heard Room for the Dead and um and just all this there's a lot of songs on this record i mean it's a different sounding record uh did you guys go with josh schroeder again on this one yeah that was actually the first record we did with josh the uh depravity was engineered mixed mastered all with joey sturgis uh yeah marriage of heaven and hell was uh engineered by joey but then as a whole we could have a podcast about this record on itself, but there ended up being a lot of drama and we had to like go to Brian hood to mix and master it. Um, and Mm. then we chose Josh Schroeder. He actually did like a, um, we did a big Papa, uh, notorious B I G cover, um, Mm -hmm. and went to Josh and recorded that and loved the experience. So we went back to him to do, that record and we wanted like we really wanted to go with josh because he was really about real real audio you know like Mm -hmm. real drum sounds and real guitar cabinets and 
we had already done two records in a row where it was, uh, you know, fake digital, that whole thing, which is cool. Um, you know, in 2009 and 10, that was like what <laughs> everybody wanted to sound like. Um, yeah. but on our last record, uh, we wanted everything to sound like us, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Totally. So that yeah, record we, is perfect too. So that makes, <laughs> dude, cool I thing. think it, I think it sounds so good. Like earlier mm-hmm. you said that marriage of heaven and hell is the heaviest record of all time or something like that, which yeah. I, I really, I say that all the time. I think marriage of heaven and hell is the heaviest record. I'll put it up against anybody. I mean, of course they're like super brutal, like guttural deathcore mm-hmm. bands that like obviously are actually heavier but like if you like listen on like if you pay attention to dynamics and the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things marriage of heaven and hell might be like the heaviest record ever um yep. but uh life and death is a better record i think better yeah. songwriting yeah i think yeah so that's kind of where i'm taking from it is like you it's kind of like the marriage of heaven and hell, but like, it's just a better, more mature written record, you know, where um, from start to finish, you can just tell that you guys were kind of in the pocket there and things like that. I mean, so it's, it's kind of cool to hear that you, you agree with that, but uh, it, take it away, Shano. It probably, yeah, say, Hey, I'm going to steal from you real quick, Shane though. Um, right, yeah. uh, one thing I will say though, is it's not as cohesive as like marriage was where like Shane was talking earlier about, marriage being like, you know, a cohesive front to end. Um, life and death probably isn't as much that as marriage was. Um, but it's a collection of like really good songs, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a collection of cool songs. The thing that it's, it's kind of interesting where it's like lyrically, it's so it's like very, very personal. It's very like you wearing your heart and your sleeve types of things. Um, but I think one of the cool things about it, even amidst all of that turmoil and heartache that went along with it, is there's a lot of um, very, very hopeful undertones with it. Not necessarily even um, like lyrically, because I mean, there are things lyrically, lyrically in there that are uplifting, but like tonally, like whether it be like major key, like major chord type of stuff, and even just like brighter tones all over the record. Um Especially like like ending like how the the record ends and stuff like that, but across the board, there's a lot of really really cool, um, like lighter tones. I think makes a really really cool dynamic. Um, and I think like how you you just said that like it's a little bit more of a collection of songs, but it's funny because I've always thought that it's really really cohesive, in the sense of, uh, like there's so many dynamic, uh, like dynamic, um, elements to it as far as tonally and just kind of like the, the the roller coaster of that record i guess you could say yeah um, there's definitely a lot of ups and downs like we let we really let blake i mean half that record is blake martin you know like yeah. singing and doing his like solo stuff basically um mm-hmm. so it was cool to be able to uh experiment with that too and let let there let there be a place for that to live you know um mm-hmm. yeah so that was pretty cool yeah, because historically, you guys haven't hadn't sang much up to that point. You know, uh, um, you had kind of touched some stuff on Marriage of Heaven and Hell. There was a there was a song towards the end of the record where it had like a, you know, like an upbeat poppy chorus and things like that. But um, up until the life and death 
of a plea for purging. You guys didn't really sing a whole lot. There wasn't a lot of, you know, the, the cleaner stuff. So it was kind of nice from that standpoint to hear Blake be able to kind of sing uh, and have those like little interludes because I think it broke the record up as a whole. I think it, it's nice because you have the you have the heavy stuff throughout, but then you have these nice little interludes um, you know, th- sprinkled throughout. So was that like a conscious decision that you guys made? Like, hey, Blake, why don't we just break this up? Or did he bring it to the table and say, hey, I think that I'm going to start kind of doing some softer stuff and maybe singing in between some of these songs? Man, I don't I don't remember it being conscious, but I, I think it was just what made sense for us because we were all growing, you know, like – we're listening to more melodic stuff that's got singing in it. And, um, you know, when we're touring down the road in the van, we're not listening to the Acacia strain anymore. We're listening to (laughs) Sue John Stevens or whatever, you know, like, so it's just, um, it just made sense. That whole thing I, I was saying in the beginning about your influence by what you're surrounded and what you're into. And, um, And also, like, it was probably a, you know, we didn't know it was going to be our last record, even though it it was probably all in the back of our brains. But, like, um, it was also playing, probably touching our toe in the water of what it would be like to go a little more, I don't want to say, like, mainstream, but, you know, like, to, to dabble in that realm of our sound to mm-hmm. see if we could do anything that was going to be more than a metalcore band, you know, cause we, we played with that idea all the time of changing our sound or our style to, um, to see if we could do something in a different genre kind of, you know, like, I mean, we had a real, real conversation. Um, it was either before or after depravity. I think it was after depravity about me switching to guitar and Blake singing and playing guitar and us trying to be like a band that sounded like cartel, you know, like, like a (laughs) real pop band. Yeah. Like that's actually really, really cool. (laughs) Like if you think about like what hundredth did, um, you know how hundredth just like one day they just flipped a switch and there was no like leading up to it and there was no announcement. It was just one day they were a completely different band and they had the same name. We had thought about like, and this was before they did that. We were just thinking, you know, well, let's put out a record. We'll be called Plea and we'll be a pop band, you know, and yeah. it didn't, it didn't make sense and we didn't do it, but we talked about it, you know, like, um, and who, who would have known if, you know, that could have been more successful and, um, <laughs> people can be mad about that kind of idea, but like, I would, I, people talk about selling out and, blah 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 blah. but if you're enjoying yourself playing music no matter what style it is if you start out as a metalcore band and you become this other band and you're still having fun and loving it and you get to make a living doing mm-hmm. that cool dude yeah. also that, that doesn't really sound like yeah. selling out to me like that's just like that's just striving for fulfillment like <laughs> yeah <laughs> for Gosh. sure i mean that that's a really cool that's actually a really cool thing i mean i um it's actually funny that you brought that up like how do you feel about a band like hundredth i, I know they're your guys i know chadwick was on um doing the 
uh, he was did some guest vocals on the on the last record there. But um, how do you feel about bands kind of just switching genres like that and, and like keeping the same name? Like um, kind of under oath, kind of did the same thing, but they just dropped like they were like, oh, we were never really like a Christian band. But I mean, they were youth your kids just ate that up. But like, I'm just saying, like, how do you feel about bands um, kind of keeping the same name but doing a drastic shift? I mean, do you think that that's something where you almost have to change your name at that point? Man, I mean, no, you know, like when it comes down to it and to be all hippy dippy about it, like it's art, right? Like, I mean, it's funny to call metalcore art, but that's what it is. And so (laughs) when art is art, if that's what you're trying to do, like, who are we to really judge like what the artist wants to do or or feels fulfilled in doing, Um, you know, like just it's it's almost no different than us playing room for the dead. And then right after room for the dead, there's one of those songs with Blake just singing on it with some electronic beats in the background, you know, like um, it's just touching on all the different influences and all the different layers that you are as a person. And, you know, like, I mean, I've talked to like hundredth is a good example. I've talked to them about it and like, you know, Chad just, wasn't happy playing hardcore anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And like all he listened to was the Smiths and shoegaze and stuff. And like, that's like what he was into and and passionate about. And so, um, I get that like, you know, fans might be upset about it or have a hard time following, but look at a band like thrice. Um, Mm. thrice is a, a, a love them or leave them kind of band either you're like a hundred percent thrice head or you're not it seems like yeah i'm kind of like on the outskirts i kind of like thrice and i kind of don't care but like oh. if you look at thrice's early the first two records is like a screamo band you know like yeah. um I, that first record of theirs has one of the coolest breakdowns of all time i think um <laughs> but so like they're like just a metalcore band screamo band and like look at where they are now and the cool thing about them is they like they progressed that way, you know, like that it, it was digestible, like their fans that were 13 years old that are now 38 years old grew with them that entire time and was able mm-hmm. to like follow and like people that were listening to them at, at 15 years old are probably not listening to that same kind of music at, at, at 40 and it worked well for them. The hard thing yeah. is like a band like Hundred that just like was one of the heaviest hardcore bands, you know, um, like really crushing it. And that record right before the like Shoegaze record, um, like was so heavy and intense and like all their fans are 15, 16, 17 years old. And then they just like flip a switch and their fans aren't ready to grow with them. You know what I mean? So <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I, on a commercial aspect, it might be crazy to do something like that, but like artistically, I can't respect it more, you know, cause you're, yeah. you're literally putting your like, m- uh, money where your mouth is, you know, like if, if that's the only way you pay your bills is by being in a band and you say, dude, we're going to do this crazy thing. And hopefully people follow with us because if they don't, we're gonna all gonna have to go get jobs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
it's either like one extreme or the other, you know, it's like, well, we could do this or, you know, we could just write a record that we all want to write and it'll actually be able to pay the bills with it. So it's definitely kind of cool to see that extreme back and forth. And that's actually a really cool perspective, Andy. I've never heard uh, one like that. I mean, cause you're right. Artistic freedom and, and things like that. So it's, I think that's really important to keep up your integrity almost and in being like, you know, um, we're just going to write music that we like and we don't really, you know, it doesn't really bother us if like, but thrice is a great example. Cause I remember listening to the artist in the ambulance when I was like a little kid, uh, not a little kid, but like, you know, 13, 14 years old, listening to that record and being like, wow, like this is vastly different than the one that, you know, came out a couple of years ago and then the, the, the newest one. And uh, I think I'm a thrice head all the way through. Cause that band fucking rules, but like uh, I understand, I completely understand the comparison and I get it. But um, so, so as you know, we're kind of transitioning away from a life and death of a plea for purging. Um, so you guys realize you write the record, you record it, and then you realize it was time uh, it, it, that, that was it. Um, and then that, I believe the last tour was the one that Shane, uh, falsely alluded to earlier. I believe it was you Gideon take it back and no bragging rights on that last plea tour, right? Uh, that was the tour before the last tour. Um, okay. I think, All right. well, I don't remember exactly how it all went down, but that was like our last full U S tour. And somewhere around the same time we went to Australia and New Zealand so I don't know if those Australia, New Zealand was before or after that no bragging rights tour. Um, but the final, I, I guess it wasn't actually a tour, but the final bulk of dates we did was us and as hell retreats. And we basically <laughs> did like a month and a month and a half, maybe two months of like weekend warrior stuff where we'd leave for three to four days at a time and hit all the hot spots of America that were good for us, you know? And then, so that way we weren't gone for two months. We just like did all the stuff that we wanted to do and not do like, um, you know, not play Wichita, Kansas or something, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) but even with that being said, like, you know, you only book the shows in the cities that are going to be the, the best, the most fun, and honestly, the most profitable on your mm-hmm. final mm-hmm. tour. You're trying to like, you are trying to leave the band with like no debt and a little money in your pocket. But we yeah. still, I mean, like, still on our final tour, I can think of a few shows we played where they were like nobody there, you know? <laughs> so it's sad to think about like, you know, putting almost a decade of your life into something and still playing Wichita, Kansas to. 40 people or something but no, I, uh, you actually mentioned as how retreats me uh that is definitely one band uh, i remember you uh, talking earlier that jason dunn could have easily been like uh i'm not releasing the marriage of heaven and hell and things like that i feel like that band uh, as how retreats uh volition record uh the one that came out on I, it was like anger or something like that but uh they were they got pulled up the face down and then you know I, I assume it's because of the lyrical content that, that Jason didn't feel comfortable putting that out, which is understandable. Uh, but I feel like Volition was definitely another record for me that uh, really, um, really kind of put them on the map. And I think that's a band that went away far too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that they, they had a lot left in them. So it's pretty cool that they got to kind of enjoy that last tour with you guys. Yeah, they got, you know, I know a little bit about their situation and with that record and stuff and, 
feel like it's okay to speak candid about it. I like, yeah. I feel like they got a raw deal, you know, like, I mean, I'm not saying so much from Jason, but like, you know, I, I think this is what happened, uh, in that, in that time frame. It's like, mm-hmm. we put out a record that was like, arguably like the angriest, most negative Christian record ever. Maybe, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to look at all the Christian metal bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did this thing and Jason like supported it and let us do it because he believed in our hearts and what we had to say. And we had like built a trust with him. Um, and then right after that, and I'm not calling it a copycat thing at all, but right after that, a few bands um started getting more that way uh some bands that were like on strike first and a couple other labels that were um doing something similar to that and then uh you know as hell put out the wrote that record that was like really really personal and dealing with a lot of the same tones you know overtones that we were dealing with um but you know in their own words and in their own hearts and like, I feel like Jason just didn't want to be known as the label that was putting out like just negative sh- shit, you know, like, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's just like band after band was handing him these negative records, you know? And like, so I get where he's coming from that, like, man, I can't keep, I can't keep putting this stuff out and especially like cause he knew us and knew our hearts and we had like a track record with him and as hell was like a newer band that he didn't like, he didn't exactly know everything about what they were about, you know? And this is the outside looking in, but then, you know, so like they left and I don't know the, you know, the terms and stuff, but they ended up going to another label and I just feel like that's where they got the raw deal. Like, that you know management and the label that they went on just didn't really work out for them you know Mm -hmm. i I really wish that they could have landed somewhere else because like they were so talented and wrote some really cool stuff dude that's yeah the most underrated band like i could like off the top of my head the most underrated band i can think of they're so dang good yeah but then i mean you got you got killer bands that came out of it i mean like Mm-hmm. Gideon, True. you know, like Tyler went to Gideon and and Blake was in Gideon for a while and Blake went to Hundredth and Blake's in Counterparts now and like all these bands like kind of spurred out of as hell and mm-hmm. are really strong because of those members that went there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for real. Yeah. But no, yeah, but I guess one of the, like a thought I have to like kind of shifting towards like starting towards post band life here, like what was there a moment for you? I, I know you said it like about like Aaron kind of having that sit down conversation with you. Um, was there like a, like, was there kind of like the, like, Oh boy, like we're done here moment. For, like in your head, was there kind of like a mini meltdown amidst that? Or was it kind of like a, well, cool. Like I'm ready for the next step. And like, um, was like towards the end of the band, like how did shifting to post band life, um, look for you? Um, like the whole process of the band ending was like the most positive, like, you know, beautiful way it could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Mm -hmm. literally me and Aaron were eating Jason's deli on tour. Uh, and, uh, he just said, Hey man, I think I'm done. 
And I said, okay, man, if you're done, I'm done. And we got back in the van after lunch and like Aaron or Blake and John had eat somewhere else. And we all four got in the van and we were driving to the next show. And I said, Hey man, we're done. And everybody goes, Oh, okay, cool, man. And so like, <laughs> let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. It was like, seriously, so easy like that. It was, there was no, there was nothing, um, like, but there was no animosity or anything. It was nothing yeah, yeah. just like support. And so, uh, we did have, I remember we made that decision before the Australia tour and we didn't want to tell anybody cause we were worried that the Australian tour would fall through. Like, cause it's a lot of money to get a band to come to play in Australia and New Zealand. There's a lot mm-hmm. of finances involved. And so like, people were putting up their money to get us to come there. And we didn't want, you know, if they knew we weren't going to be a band anymore, maybe they wouldn't want to invest in us coming there. So yeah. mm-hmm. we didn't tell anybody cause we wanted to go play there. So we played, we did those tours. And as soon as we got home, we started planning what was going to be like the last shows. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, the whole, I'm looking at a picture from one of those shows right now. It was called the quit your band to get a job tour. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, we tried to book the highest paying shows that we could, um, you know, I mean, it was definite cash grab. We mm. play all our best markets cause like none of us, you know, for, for almost a decade, I think we were banned for seven years. None of us had a job during that time, you know, like we, like, Blake and I did like some, we used to make my spaces for bands and stuff and like, mm-hmm. you know, little stuff like that. We all had side hustles, but none of us had like jobs, you know, nobody had crazy savings accounts or lots of money. So the idea was at the end of the band, we were going to try to like at least leave the last show with like a little bit of money to be able to start our new lives. Um, mm-hmm. So we booked some shows, played some shows, tried to sell as much merch as possible and when it was all said and done, we sold our van and our trailer and all our, like everything that the band, you like, if you saw us playing music on stage, all of that gear was owned by our band owned as a business. Um, hmm. oh, wow. so like, I mean, we were like really smart and intentional about every dime we spent from the very beginning. I mean, the first three years of the band, like nobody really took a paycheck. It was like $5 a day figure out how to pay your own cell phone bill and get over it. Um, (laughs) And so then like the last two, three years of the band, we had finally started making enough money where everybody had apartments and those Mm. kind of things. um, And we're paying our bills, but that we ended the band with no, absolutely no debt. We never went into merch debt ever. Um, That's incredible. Always paid for our our merch up front. Uh, the only functioning debt we ever had was a van payment and we paid that off while we were touring. Um, mm. so we, we ended the band on such a positive note. Cause like a lot of that stuff bands end like in debt and uh, it, everybody has to fight over who's going to pay what. And somebody ends up getting stuck with the bill. Um, mm-hmm. so it was cool. We ended like, uh, as best friends, dude. I mean, I still, uh, everybody's kind of done their own thing. John moved over to Knoxville, which is two hours away from Nashville. Aaron has moved out to California. Um, I moved to Minnesota for three years, but I've moved back 
um, in the last couple of years. Um, so we don't all see each other all the time anymore, but we're like, we're all in a, uh, text, you know, a mass text conversation that we talk to each other all the time. And, um, it's cool. It's very positive. Like it, it couldn't have ended any better. That's, yeah. that's so incredible. Yeah, for sure. Like that's what a lot of people, that's kind of the unseen stuff that a lot of people don't see, especially when you play a genre of music, like hardcore. Um, there's a lot that goes into it that you don't see. Yeah. You see your favorite bands touring, you know, all over the country and you're mad that they're not coming here, here, here. but you, you, what people fail to understand sometimes is the personal sacrifice you make um, doing stuff like that. And you, I mean, you, you mentioned the first three years, you know, you, you got to kind of figure out the way that you do that. And that's absolutely, I mean, we've all played in bands at the local level, you know, we, you kind of see um, just where, it's a lot harder than what, you know, just getting up there and playing every night, you know, you got to worry about other stuff going on. And then when you do start having families and things like that, that's a whole nother beast, you know, to kind of get into. So mm. I, I think that's really an, an unsung mm. kind of thing when, when it's being in a band for so long, but that's kind of cool that you guys um, didn't really, you know, suffer from that. And then you guys ended on a good note because the best piece of advice I ever got from somebody was never start a band with your friends. And, and here, I mean, you can see that this is one of those situations where that definitely worked out for the better. Yeah. I mean, you mm. know, like we just tried to make every decision based on that, you know, I mean, like every dollar that was made was split like evenly between everybody, you know, even though like, you know, if we wanted to, in publishing, we could have like made Blake the primary songwriter because he wrote most everything guitar wise. And, you know, like there's things like that where people could have, there could have been a break in the money differently, but it just didn't make sense to us. We were, you know, mm-hmm. everybody was playing an equal part in the band. Like half of the band's existence, John was the booking agent for the band. Uh, Aaron, pretty much, we we had one van that had 250,000 miles on it. The first van had like a 100 plus thousand miles on it. And then our last van had 330,000 miles on it. So you add up all those miles like damn, man, that's probably like three quarters of a million miles driven. (laughs) Um, And Aaron drove almost all those miles. In the beginning, John drove a lot, but Aaron drove all the time. Um, I did most of the management for the band. Uh, There were a couple of times we had managers, but, um, you know, like everybody had their role and um, everybody deserved to get equally paid. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of bands just, operate completely different than we did and that there's no there's no way to say that that's better or worse or whatever but like um i was thinking about this lance when you were talking a second ago but like um our like this is for real how we started our bands all like all of those dudes that were in the band but me were living in a house together i was living in an apartment with some other dudes we all sold everything that we owned and moved out of our places and got out of our leases. And for the first few years, the band from 2006 to like 2010, nine or 10, like homeless, literally homeless. Like none of us had a mailing address or anywhere to live. And we slept on couches when we weren't on tour. So that for the first few years, we toured three, literally 300 plus days a year. 
because it was cheaper and easier to live as long as we were playing a show in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we could sleep on Jimmy's couch at the end of the night, um, <laughs> you know, than to try to afford an apartment at home. And so we, I mean, that's seriously what we did. We toured, 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 Man. toured. And like, we all made that investment together, you know, to, to sell everything and to move out of our houses. Cause we believed in each other and what mm -hmm. we were doing enough to, to really do it. And what's crazy is I jumped in at the very end. I mean, I was in the band like maybe two months before we went on our first fucking tour. So like, <laughs> you know, it was like, it was crazy that I jumped into that stuff, but, and it all worked out, but dude, like I talk a lot, a lot about, um, there's forever friends and there's for now friends. And yeah. you have some friends that like are really, really important to you right now, but they might not really be that important to you in 10 years. And I don't think mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with that. Like I have some friends that were like, so, so, so instrumental in my life when I was 21 and now I barely ever talk to them. And that's just like, they were, that, that was a time and place for both of us. But like mm -hmm. these dudes, like I'm looking at the picture of our second to last show and those three dudes on that stage with me, like are forever, dude, forever, forever, forever friend, family. And it's, uh, yeah. it's cool, Jeez. dude. That's some, yeah. giving me some chills over here. Holy cow. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, but the, you wouldn't have it any other way because you guys have, you know, you've been up and down the road together. You spend so much of your lives together. And that's really kind of, um, that, that, I think that's a testament to who you guys are as people because it's easy to kind of get like egos kind of run wild and kind of be like, well, you know, I did this and I did this. You know what I mean? I, I'm entitled to this. And, but it's kind of cool to hear a uh, band. It's, it's refreshing to hear that that kind of stuff didn't happen uh, with you guys. So yeah. uh, I remember. I was hanging out with you guys at a Denny's one time. I, we, we played one of your headlining shows and uh, we were hanging out with you guys at a Denny's and, and the, the best piece of advice you ever given me, Andy was, uh, Hey man, I'd rather play a headlining show and make X amount of dollars than play a support tour for a bigger tour and make way less, you know? And that always kind of stuck with me. Cause I was like, Oh man, like he makes a lot of sense because when you and then when you hear stuff like that, you're like, wow, you are really like, hey, man, this is paying my bills and stuff as much as you mm -hmm. love the music and, you, and you're really passionate about the everything you're talking about. And nobody's taking away that from you. But at the end of the day, this is how I pay my bills kind of thing. I mean, that's always in the back of your mind, right? Yeah, I mean that and that's like, you know, if you think about some of the stuff that was said on the last record, um, mm -hmm. it's it's heavy that your like passion, your art, your like this thing that is in your bones and in your soul. And it, at first it just starts as that. Then it becomes the way that you pay your bills. You know, in the beginning when we were homeless and we didn't have anywhere to live, who cares like how many kids came to the shows and how many records were sold and how many mm -hmm. t-shirts we sold yeah. as long as we could make enough money to eat two cheesy bean and rice burritos at the end of the night like we were cool but like yeah. once once you do hit like a certain level of quote unquote success to where you have started making a little bit of money and then you take that leap of faith of okay because like for real i can't stress we we had nothing we had no money we had no houses then somewhere in the realm of like marriage of heaven and hell, 
that's when we started like making some money and like being able to like actually take a paycheck from the band. And so then you get tired of sleeping on couches and uh, you go, okay, I think I can afford to live in this uh, $500 a month apartment, right? So you get an apartment Mm -hmm. and then it goes from not only being this fun, passionate thing that you're making money at doing and ooh, it's so fun to, oh man, but we do have to make enough money on this tour for me to pay my rent and to pay my electricity and my cable Mm -hmm. and all these new responsibilities that I've taken on for myself, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it does then become the same stress that a job is, you know, and you have to make it, uh, you have to like start really thinking about, dude, what's the t-shirt that's going to sell the most, you know, it's a bummer that you have to start doing that, but you're like, that's why if you know anything about our band, we had more t-shirt designs than anybody. I mean, I can only (laughs) think of like a couple bands like salt, the wound maybe. And like a couple that like, there were a couple merch bands. It's what we call them, you know, that had mm-hmm. more designs than us, but we would carry for real, like 20 to 30 t-shirt designs on the road with us because like one, we went, we need a shirt for every person in the building. Like mm. if it's gotta be a funny, goofy, like cartoon shirt and a super, super metal shirt and a hardcore kid shirt. And then like a fashionable looking shirt, you gotta have a, one for everybody. Cause that's how you paid your bills, you know, um, I'm getting off on a tangent, but yeah, like you have to start making business decisions. What Mm -hmm. this thing that started out as being like a 15 year old kid that just wanted to like get in a van and tour and it gets all the way to, Oh my gosh, I'm paying my bills. And I have a girlfriend that's going to be my wife one day and we're living together and we're building a future and I can't make any bad financial decision in this band that's going to affect her life. That's Mm -hmm. heavy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah. It's kind of funny you mentioned that because, like, we're in a situation right now, like, uh, like my band, like, we have, like, all four of us are married. Um, We have two kids in the band. So it's like, like, like you said, like, your tactic starts becoming way more like, it's not that we don't want to lose money. We literally cannot lose money. Right. you don't have like that financial, you don't have like that. Um, Oh, you know, it's, it's all right. Like I got, you know, I got the savings account or what mm-hmm. you don't have. That. There's no, there's no net. Yeah. So, I mean, for some people that works, you know what I mean? But uh, so, I mean, I completely understand all that, you know, when, when you're kind of thinking about it and you're like, man, like, look, I, I love what I do and, and things, but you're right. It does eventually become, uh, well, man, you know, we got to pay bills and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And you don't want to think about it like that. But at the same time, being a practical functioning human, you almost have to. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, so so the band breaks up. Um, how did you kind of adjust? Um, did, did you start to miss it kind of at first? Or was it more just like I, more of a relief? Hey, I'm, I'm done with that part of my life. It's kind of start uh, this next chapter coming up. Um, it was really heavy, I think, like. Um, maybe in, in that time, I didn't realize how heavy it is, but now looking back at it, I can, um, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent ready to give it up. Uh, but also, you know, I wasn't going to try to like 
build a new band under the same name and, and travel with a bunch of kids or something, you know? So like, um, I wasn't a hundred percent ready, but at the same time, like I had a whole lot of heartache and heavy stuff going on in my life and I needed to come off the road. I, th- I think I was giving too much of myself to like this persona, you know, like my whole identity was wrapped up in being Andy from a plea for purging and mm. not Andy Atkins or Andy Rachel's uh, partner, you know, mm. like, um, so I found so much of who I was in the adoration from the kids that were coming to our shows, you know, and I don't think I realized that at the time, but I do now, you know, being so many years removed. Um, <clears throat> but like, I didn't plan ahead, you know, like I knew there was a glass ceiling and that our band wasn't going to be Metallica. Right. But at (laughs) the same time, like I was a very live in the moment for the moment. Um, I'm not so much about planning. I'm just trying to party and have a good time and like really soak it up. Cause like, this is my twenties, man. And I'm like in Australia and I'm in, uh, Europe and, you know, all over the world. I've been to like 18 or 19 countries and I didn't want to think about anything, but what I was doing right then and just make it count because one day I'm not going to have it. Right. So, um, with all that being said, when it was all said and done, I didn't have anything to fall back on. Um, you know, I, I didn't have many skills or talents other than just being a fat overweight dude that can tell some jokes in between songs. Cause I'm not even that good at like screaming. Um, so when I came off the road, it was, it was like hitting the ground running because basically I'd put pause on my life for growing up, you know? So I think the band was over when I was like 30, 31, somewhere in there. And like, I had to hit the grand, ground and figure out how to be a grown up. Cause I'd never mm-hmm. paid attention to saving or like having money or caring about the future or anything like that. So like I just started working and head down work, 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 work. And I've had like so many different jobs since the band ended. I've started over like two or three times. But the thing about me is like, I'm not one to try to gloat or, or be prideful, but like I do have a gnarly work ethic. I'll work as hard Mm -hmm. as, as possible at whatever the job is, uh, whether it's Mm -hmm. glorious or not. Um, so I've, I've taken some pretty crappy jobs and worked really hard and moved up in those jobs, um, two or three times. But like, the thing is, I miss that, like ever changing, uh, landscape of what tour is, you know? So Mm -hmm. I have a hard time staying in a job or a career or a company for very long because I get bored with it. Um, Mm -hmm. so luckily I've been able to like do a few different things and, um, learn some different crafts and talents and things along the way, but it was really dark in the beginning because like the, one of the very first jobs I took after the band was over, uh, we lived in Nashville for about a year and then we moved to Minnesota and this was like about the darkest time of my life and not so much that we were in Minnesota, it was it had its ups and downs. It was really cold and I got like some seasonal depression, but this was the the answer you're looking for. And I've been going all over the place, but I took a job doing 
oh, you go and you like when you walk into a store or a restaurant and you wipe your feet on the floor mat that you're walking into that business, that floor mat is rented by that business. And there's a guy that comes in once a week and picks up that dirty floor mat and puts down a clean one. That's a yeah, like Centos. Yes. So I was working okay. for some like local company, but that's that's the thing. And like that's the job I took when I moved to Minnesota. And I did that for three years. The guy that I worked for was great and like it was a pretty good paying job. Um, but I went from being the coolest dude in the world standing on stage <laughs> in front of a hundred kids or a thousand kids, but I was the center of attention for 45 minutes a night to being the guy that picks up the mats that you wipe your fucking feet off on. And like, (laughs) it just hit me like a bag of bricks that like, I went from being the coolest dude to the dude that nobody cares about, you know? And that's what, that's the way I felt at the time, you know? man. Um, But then like, that is what showed me that I, my identity was wrapped up in like who people thought I was and what people thought about me. And like, that's not, what you should be building yourself on, man. You should be building mm-hmm. yourself on what you think about you and what your family thinks about you and like, and what you are in your community, you know? And so it took me a lot to work through it. And, um, you know, I'm still trying to figure out who I am and what I want out of life and what I want to do. And I've like been through some dark times of like, and some pretty heavy negativity. Um, but, I'm kind of on my way out of all that stuff. I've uh, realized that I got pretty dark and pretty negative for a while and uh, pulling myself out of it. And it feels good. But uh, all the other dudes, I think, handled it a little bit better than me just because like they had like John like knew he wanted to be a fireman. Like when he was in the band, he was like, I'm going to be a fireman when I'm out of the band. And so (laughs) he became a fireman and now he's a dad. And uh, Blake worked at a brewery for a long time because he loves beer. And then he got tired of that. Now he's a home inspector and he inspects people's homes. Um, And Aaron's got some super big boy, badass job in L.A. selling wood to people like like he's like he works for some like lumber company that does super high end, like fancy uh, builds and stuff. So um, everybody's doing their thing and love and life. Yeah, for real. That's so cool. <laughs> you you kind of alluded to both these questions I'm about to ask you here, but um, kind of like expand on a little bit. So, what was like maybe not necessarily, um, I mean maybe mindset wise, but mostly like hobby wise, um, what were some things that you've like that you've realized now post band life that you have an interest in, um, that maybe you wouldn't have had the the time or chance to really explore while being in the band, um. And how has like posed, like, are there any things that like being in a band, like has helped you with post band life? If that makes sense. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, while we were touring, um, Blake and I both made a little bit of money on a tour and both decided to buy Harleys. Um, Mm. and so like, uh, Blake had already ridden motorcycles for a little while, but I hadn't. And like the first bike I bought, bought was crappy and I sold it off and then I got a Harley and like, um, you know, the last year or so of the band we'd ride when we were off tour and stuff. But then when we got out of the band, like, um, you just got 
a lot of time on your hands and a lot of thought and a lot of like creativity that you're still trying to put out into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so I got pretty into, uh, bikes, you know, like working on bikes, customizing them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like specifically I'm into choppers, which, you know, there's all different kinds of motorcycles, but, uh, that we could talk about that forever, but, uh, I'm into, <laughs> working on bikes and customizing them. And so like I've done, you know, I've built a bike for myself, um, did a whole lot of work and got Rachel into riding and did mm -hmm. a lot of work on her bike and made it pretty badass and, uh, just work on a lot of friends bikes and stuff. And, um, that's been pretty cool. Cause it's like a new, um, that's a part of my identity, which it's not who I am. I'm not Andy, the chopper guy. But it's a, it's a part of who I am now. Yeah. You know, everybody knows that I got the tool they need if they need to come over and work on their bike. And that's, yeah, that's fun to be that for people. That's... And, um, there's, you know, there's that. And then, um, I don't know. I mean, that's probably been like the biggest thing I've been into, but with that, we're also like gotten really into camping over the past, mm. like four or five years. So like, we get on our bikes and we take off for a weekend and we just camp very minimalist, uh, off the back of our bikes and, uh, string up some hammocks or some tents. And, um, that's kind of the thing we're into. And Rachel's like taking it on, you know, she loves it just as much as I do. And so that's pretty cool. That's something that we can share together. And, uh, we just been building a life together, man. It's crazy. Like yeah. to be a yeah. grown up Hell now, yeah. we brought it bought a house like we're, a year ago <laughs> oh sick yeah for real um were were you with you, you said your name's rachel yeah yeah were you were you were you guys together during plea uh yeah not the entire time but she was with mm -hmm. me for the good times you know so Sweet. uh yeah somewhere, <laughs> somewhere we were we got together in 2009 i think so it was probably on mm -hmm. the de depravity record cycle yeah. Um, so yeah. kind of the reason I asked that is I think it's like a, at least I kind of feel like being in like a more serious relationship, like while touring, like you kind of start feeling guilt towards like seeing these incredible things, like all these landmarks and whatnot. So to kind of like be at a point in life where you get to like, instead of your travel buddies, quote unquote, being like your other smelly dudes in your band, like to actually have your travel buddy kind of be your significant other is like, that's, I think that's a super, super cool place to be. And I'm like, I'm sure that brings like it, like a huge amount of joy to you. I'm sure. Yeah. It's very cool. I mean, it's like, it's two completely different vibes, you know, like there's <laughs> something to be said about like me when, when us guys still get together every once in a while, like once every couple of years, there's some reason that we all get to be together. And we'll mm -hmm. talk about those days when, you're you're at home for two or three months and then it's time to get back on the, in the van and go on tour and that first hour or two of tour is so sick because you're oh, like yeah. <laughs> you're just in the van and all you're doing is talking shit on your wives and girlfriends and you're like talking about all the stuff that annoys you and like can you believe she did this and like all this stuff you know and like of course we love them and it's all in fun but like Dude, and you haven't seen them, you know, like, oh, of course mm -hmm. we'd get together and we practice for like a week before a tour, but like, really, man, that, like that getting in the van and you just, there's nothing like it. It just feels 
oh man, I've missed you guys. I've missed this stinky mm -hmm. van. Um, so that's really incredible and its own thing, but awesome. Yeah. Like being Rachel and I have seen so many really cool things on our bikes. Like we've ridden, you know, damn near across the country. We rode from Minnesota to the black Hills and camped in the mountains and rode to the badlands. And just a couple of weeks ago, we went into the smoky mountains and did a bunch of riding and it's so special, man. And we enjoy yeah. it. Um, yeah. Yeah, which I'm sure there's there's an element of that to you as well, where it's like, whenever I don't I don't know how how plea function for you guys, but like, whenever you are doing the touring thing, you don't really get to experience areas. You're like, oh, like I just have a load in time. That McDonald's is all right, I guess, and then you see a rest stop, and that's kind of it. Like you never actually right. get to really dive into the like local like scenery or whatever. Yeah, I mean, dude, I've I've seen every Walmart. And every Starbucks in America, but like, I haven't seen all the cool stuff. And that's the thing, yep. like that bums me out like a little bit about like not still being a band is that mm. like bands now get to experience a whole different world of touring than we did when we mm. were touring there. And, you know, and if you think about even before us, people had it worse than us, but like when we very first started touring, we were like using MapQuest printed out directions. That's like when we started touring. Like you did, you barely even had a GPS, and then you went to GPS. There wasn't even iPhones out yet. And like, but when we ended the band, like Instagram had just started, and like, mm -hmm. like wasn't very big yet. But think about right now, and like you're in a band, so like I guess you still tour some, like. Dude, you get to a venue and you're bored and you don't want to hang out with your dudes or you're like you're having a bad day, whether you do or don't want to hang out with your dudes. But like, you know, if everybody's not game and you can't take the van in 2006, then you're stuck at that venue. But now yeah. you, can, you can jump on a Lime or Bird scooter and ride around yeah. town or you can get a uh, Uber. You can get Postmates or Uber Eats, anything you want. Like it's, it's an insanely different world of touring yeah. now that I really wish I had experienced. Cause like <laughs> I can think about sitting around at the venue thinking, man, I really wish I could go to journeys right now and buy a new pair of shoes, but the mm -hmm. guys don't want to go to the mall. All I had to do was like hit Uber and go to the mall or, you know, like, like that's so sick that that exists yep. now. I've yeah. oh, I've only ever done that one time. I, I like we had a load in somewhere in Minnesota. I can't remember what, like what the venue was, but um, I ended up doing like an Uber Eats thing. That's literally the only time in my entire life I've done Uber Eats. I literally <laughs> remember like like being in like the loading area like to pick up my food, and I was just like, this feels like I'm in like like a space age sort of thing. Like this is the craziest thing I've ever done. Um, never done it again, but yeah, it's like a super super weird feeling. Like <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so then you get into you get into kind of that post band life. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in 2017, Jason kind of pulls you out of retirement a little bit, and you guys played the 20th anniversary. I believe it was the 20th anniversary of Face Down Fest. Um, what did those conversations look like? I mean, were you guys receptive to that idea um, right away? Had you have ever been approached about re reuniting before that? Um, what was kind of the thought process of um, having Jason ask you? Which I mean. 
everyone that knows Jason Dunn, I mean, that's an automatic yes. I mean, that's what we're going to do. You know, he's a solid dude. So, um, but what was that conversation like with Jason? Uh, were you guys completely receptive to it? And before that, did you guys have like some offers to reunite before, or was this really the first time that anyone had approached you guys about it? Um, we, I get, uh, I get asked all the time, like all the time still less now than like maybe a few years ago, but like I've gotten like a, a copious amounts of like, Hey, will you come play this show in Nebraska or something? You know what I'm saying? But like mm-hmm. any of the ones that were like actually like had some validity to it or like you could tell it was going to be like some sort of actual paycheck, you know, like um, not yeah. to make it all about money, but you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, why you're going to do it, I guess. Um, but uh, anytime I get a real offer, I would take it to the guys, to the three dudes and say, Hey, you know, Joe Schmo in Texas wants us to come play the door and, do you guys want to do it? And we, it's always, always agreed upon that. No, like everybody says no. Um, but I want everybody to have that offer, you know, or have Mm -hmm. that chance to say yes or no. Cause what if Mm -hmm. one day Aaron's just like, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, we always just always say no. Cause we all made a commitment that that was the last, the last show at rocket town was the last show. Um, but Jason, came to me and said hey man you know it's 20 years we're celebrating the label we want alumni you know you guys are very important to us um please do it blah 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 and um i brought it to the band and we decided no and that was the answer that i gave jason um wow and yeah we decided that we weren't gonna do it um i mean it was it was not like so cut and dry but Um, but we had decided, you know, like that was, that was our original plan in 2012 was to never like the, the very last note of the last show, uh, they turned on Taylor Swift's, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. (laughs) And that was our statement as like, we're not doing it. Um, and, uh, so that was it. And then Aaron moved to California from Nashville and Aaron went surfing or something. I think him and Jason went surfing um, or swimming or whatever. And Jason talked Aaron into it. Um, And Aaron or Jason emailed me and said, Aaron's in. So if the rest of you guys want to do this and we're like, I guess if Aaron's in, then we're in. So uh, he, he broke the band up and he got the band back together. Um, so we flew out there and we did it. And I mean, it, it actually ended up being like a pretty bad experience. I think not. I mean, I love Jason. I love face down and I'm really, really glad that we got to see a lot of the people, you know, cause we're like, we're friends with like all of those bands and all the people. And um, mm-hmm. it was special to be there and get asked to be a part of it. And I mm-hmm. think it could have been a pretty magical thing, but like, and I've told this story a couple of times, so I'll just, I'll shorten it. But basically like John's wife was uh, pregnant at the time in Nashville and like two months premature went into labor the Ugh. day before we were supposed to play face down fest. 
So John had to fly back to Nashville that night. We like rushed him to the last flight that was going out of California that day was San Diego. We drove from Pomona to San Diego to get him on the airplane. Um, and he went home and we had to play the show without John. And so that just made it very, like, it just wasn't special to me at that point because like we're missing Mm -hmm. one of the key pieces. He is a corner block in our band and he's been there since the very beginning. And, um, it just felt, it felt bad and wrong to play without him, you know? And so, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't like what we wanted it all to be. And I felt bad that John couldn't be there with us to share the experience. Um, so, and like the night before, uh, and Blake and I had to spend the entire evening at Jason's house, um, r- recording the bass guitar parts into a computer. Um, so we could do that whole computer tracked bass thing. Um, because we didn't have enough time for somebody to learn our songs. And so we didn't even get to experience like the weekend of face down fest. We didn't even get to hang out and see all of our friends, you know, it was very yeah, like, for sure. it was it all work trip real yeah, quick. It was all business. It was all business, mm-hmm. man. And that's yeah. a bummer. Cause like, that's not, that's absolutely not what face down fest is for us mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did Tyler Riley play guitar for you guys on that show? Yeah, he did. Um, yeah. So like that was, you know, the last, uh, year or two of plea, we were a four piece and we just, uh, played with a computer. Um, I don't know if you know that or mm-hmm. not, but our a computer yeah. was like the second guitar player. Um, mm-hmm. so we didn't want to do that and go through all that trouble. Um, and so we just had Tyler Riley play guitar with us and then it ended up, we had to go through all that trouble and get a computer to play the bass for us. <laughs> Yeah, so you ended up having to do uh, the thing that you didn't want to do in the first place. <laughs> right, you ended up doing it anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, what a what a hellacious ride that that must have been. You know, kind of coming because you're right. Like when you're going into uh, Face Down Fest, you're going into the weekend. You know, you're like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. We're going to see a lot of old faces. We're just going to be able to party. You know, and 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 then not so much. So, uh, but uh, I have seen the videos of the performance and it looked like you guys were spot on as normal. Mm. That was one thing that I always said, every time I saw a plea, I was like, this is the tightest fucking band I've ever heard. Like it's just live. Like you guys, I know Aaron's like a machine, you know, he, he, um, I remember uh, a couple of drummers that I was playing with. They would just say like, this guy's insane. Like this drummer is just, he's like a human metronome. So you guys are always so tight. And so seeing that 17 performance, it was, it was cool for me because, um, I thought it was really awesome that you guys had stuck to your word, you know, that, and mm. you just alluded to it there. Um, you talk a little bit, you know, and it's like, you know what, we're done and, and that's it. And that's final. And even telling Jason done, you know, no first. So th- I think that's really cool. And it really shows your guys's integrity um, and things like that. But, you know, it was cool to see you guys come out of retirement. I think impending doom played that show too, didn't they? Uh, yeah. They played right after us that night. Yeah. Yeah, that was like that was insane because I remember I remember seeing Impending Doom in like 2008 on the Scream the Prayer tour, and then seeing them like kind of come full circle was was pretty wild. But uh, but yeah, man, I mean, and then after that, you know, you just I mean, I guess you're just returned to normal life. So what's uh, what's been kind of the stuff you've been doing like you know lately, like um, in the last year or so? I mean, are you 
are you like kind of tossing around the ideas of ever playing music again, or, or are you just into the whole motorcycle thing? What have you, what has your life kind of looked at in the last, you know, six months to a year? Um, I got, I got really focused on, uh, my career. I was working in, uh, production and staging. So basically mm-hmm. like going, uh, for a while I was touring, like setting up and tearing down stages for like arena bands and stuff. And then, um, took a, a management position at a company. So basically sending out stage gear and staging guys to set up stages for, you know, Zach Brown band and panic at the disco and those, those kind of things. Um, so I got mm-hmm. really, really focused on that. Um, probably blinded a little bit, like had my blinders on to like work, 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 work. Um, and it got very overwhelming. Um, and so like to wrap that up, basically COVID has shut down the entire, you know, entertainment industry. And like mm-hmm. our, our industry just went to a halt like four months ago and every, every tour in the world ended. So like, with all that being said, it made a lot of crazy hard decisions and things to decide upon. But now I don't work in that industry. I don't work for that company anymore. And uh, moving forward, I'm trying to figure out what that means and what I'm going to get into now. But um, as I alluded to earlier, like I realized that um, I was getting pretty negative because basically I think it got pretty hand in hand with like, I lived my entire life living for the moment and being like just really invested in in the moment, like us right here talking to each other, it, like being very invested in it. But then mm-hmm. I got when I hit the ground running, and, you know, right when the band was over, all I could think about was the future. All I could think about was savings, savings account, building for the future, savings account, building for the future. What am I going to be when I'm 50? What am I going to be when I'm 60? So I got really, like, that was all I could think about. And and that's where the, I think the negativity came because I wasn't paying attention to the present and living in the now. And all of this Corona COVID stuff is like, showed me that and gave me a, given me a second to like breathe and think about it. And, you know, maybe working really hard and having a big savings account so I can have the next cool toy or whatever isn't what's important to me like having quality time with Rachel throughout the day and like not spending 60 70 hours a week in this building that I'm working in but spending more time with her and being at home so these are all things I'm trying to figure out you know I have a little bit of uh time and savings and stuff to try to figure this out but um I'm trying to currently rebuild my life and my thought process on being able to spend more uh quality time in whatever i'm doing whether that be yeah i mean we have to pay our bills and we have to work but be intentional about the work i'm doing and and hopefully not uh burn myself out on it um Mm -hmm. so like to answer your question i was doing that thing and really really big into uh career mindset right now i'm really just uh, focused a lot on me personally and what is going to bring me joy, uh, in the, you know, in the present and in the future. And, uh, Rachel and I bought a house last year. We were supposed to get married this year in April and Corona shut that down. 
and we were supposed mm-hmm. to get married and and then we postponed it to this August. And I don't know when you guys are airing this and we haven't told our people yet, but uh, we're also going to cancel that because like Nashville just reverted to phase two in our like process or whatever, you know, all the trying to get out of it. Um, so anyway, we're going to have to put off our wedding again this year and not, not get married this year. So that's a bummer. Um, but I'm pretty focused on like partying and getting back to like, um, you know, being the kid that I used to be like, and I don't mean like being immature and reverting backwards, but like I used to like my, the, my thought process to wrap it all up, like is the older and older we get, the more cynical we become. At least that's mm-hmm. the way I'm growing. I'm growing in cynicism mm-hmm. as opposed to growing in uh, joy and happiness. And that's so yeah. sad. And I've realized it about myself and I'm trying to like put push pause and go back the other way. And um, I want to grow in happiness and enjoy and then uh, remember all the things that like, remember the very first time I'm just uh, rambling here, but remember, no, no. remember the very first time you went to uh, like a heavy show or any show really. But remember like that joy and that uh, it was terrifying and scary but like your heart was mm-hmm. racing and it was so exciting and uh, it was all new and you were innocent to it. Like, dude, like yeah. that's how we need to live our life forever, man. Yeah. Like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, that's, that's such a, that's such a great thing to, to live by. Cause you're right. Um, speaking, you know, we have a couple more things we want to touch on then we're going to get you out of here. But uh, speaking of like the C virus, as I like to call it, you know, coronavirus is played out. It's the C virus. Like it's some kind of, sci-fi movie or something but uh do you think the music industry you lived in it a long time do you think the music industry will ever fully be able to recover from something like this dude i don't know like the one thing i do know is you know and and us the three of us and like our bands and like plea for purging and tiger wine and everything like we we're in like such a small little bubble compared compared to like the stuff that I've been doing in the past, in the recent years, you know, but like, mm-hmm. dude, like think about, uh, the housing crash, uh, in what 2008 or think about yeah. like even before any of our times, like back in the great depression or like in the early eighties, there was like a, a huge, like economic crash, like the music industry, not one time ever was touched by any of this ever. People were still buying music. People were still going to shows because they needed the escape. It never Mm -hmm. dipped. Even like, you know, the industry has changed and people don't buy records anymore, but like people still go to concerts and like, you know, like support bands. So like this is the first time ever that in our lifetime or in the industry's lifetime that it's been just stopped a dead stop. And like Mm -hmm. everybody's trying to figure it out. You know, everybody's doing the live streams and figuring out how to like have a, you know, Patreon and whatever, whatever ways that people can like um, earn and not be on the road. Um, But dude, I don't know, man, it is definitely going to change the future of the industry and the way that bands and artists have to, um, you know, put themselves out there. Um, I mean, yeah. like, and you know, I'm not, I don't think 
you know, people are going to go to shows again one day. Um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. But like, I think the future of our country is going to, I, I, at least I know that I'm going to be more intentional about everything that I do in the future. As far as like, man, I wash yeah. my hands so much more than I used to. I'm like so uh-huh. intentional about who I like embrace or shake their hand or mm-hmm. even like stand, you know, plus it's on everybody's mind right now, but I, I've been realizing how gross of a life that we all live. Like think about being in the <laughs> fucking pit. Think about being in a mosh pit and like the sweat and spit. Like I used to spit off the stage into the crowd. That is so disgusting, dude. And like, I hope that that shit never happen again in the future. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so, yes, it's going to change, but I don't know where it's going. And I think like, yeah. you know, just like we've all had to do, like, y- y- y'all, like y'all know that like CDs used to sell and you used to be make some money off your actual actual CD purchase. And that's not a thing anymore. Maybe you make a little bit of money off of Spotify and stuff. And I'm, I'm so far removed from it now that I don't know the best way that a band makes money anymore, but like, Mm -hmm. um, you're definitely, every band is just gonna continue to have to evolve. You know, we started really paying attention to selling t-shirts when our CD sales started suffering, you know, Mm -hmm. and now it's like, whatever the next thing is like, I mean, there's bands like, my epic that are doing like their uh, paid epicenter thing where people will do Patreon to them. And like, I think that's going to be a big thing and mm-hmm. people start just figuring out ways to make money. I mean that I'm trying to figure out that kind of stuff right now. Like, you know, not to like shamelessly plug my stuff, but like I'm trying to figure out like a video channel and, and working on a podcast of my own um, and yeah. trying to like, get into that stuff a little bit. And I don't have any delusions that it's going to be the next, you know, Joe Rogan or the next like big, uh, you know, internet sensation. But if I can figure out how to like put out some content that people actually think is worth something, man, if I could start a Patreon and people give me like $5 a month, that's a a decent way of making a little bit of subsidized income, you know? Yeah. And I think everybody's got to start thinking that way if they're trying to be creative, you know, just Mm -hmm. brainstorm for sure. I remember right at the beginning of, of everything that kind of went down, I went and saw, it was March 10th. I remember it, I live in the Cleveland area and we went up to the Agora and we saw Kill Switch Engage, August Burns Red and Light the Torch. And it was March 10th and the tour got canceled on March 12th. And I was just like, so I'm in, and that place was sold out. I mean, people to people, probably 4,000 people there. And uh, I just remember thinking, Man, I was in, <laughs> I was in the thick of it with people. Uh, we were sweating all over each other. It was wild, and now there's this deadly z- disease going around. So uh, I didn't catch it, thank you know, thankfully. But uh, I really think that uh, you're you're completely right because when you think about shows and stuff like shows that are really packed in, man, there's no like. The only thing between you and the next dude besides is imagination, you know, yeah. just you, yeah. you know, so, um, so you're right. The industry is going to change. It's going to have to adapt. It's going to be kind of like when CDs started to kind of falter, you noticed, you know, labels weren't so prominent and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably going to be another Renaissance we see, uh, where you just bands might be doing more of the live streaming thing, but then that takes away from a little bit of a, 
you know, me and Shane are wrestling fans and, and we talk all the time about like watching pro sports without fans is, is one of the most like it's just it's things you, you only see in a movie and you're like, oh, that's not really going to happen ever. Mm-hmm. And then it does. And you're just like, wow, man, this is fucking wild. But then, you know, shows are kind of the same way. You see these bands and, you know, look, I played a lot of shows to nobody and I've been to a lot of shows where nobody's there. But I've also been to a lot of packed shows uh, and it's just it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. And all I can say, Andy, is that you're probably counting your blessings that you're not having to deal with that aspect of it. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, like Blake and I were just having this conversation the other day of just, we have no clue how a band actually makes a living now, you know, compared to like, people ask me all the time, like how to do it and how to start and like, the way that we started our band and sold all our shit and went homeless. Like, I don't know that that would benefit or exist anybody to anybody anymore. Cause like we could book our tours off of MySpace and like stay gone for mm-hmm. 300 days a year. But like, you know, especially right now during uh, the COVID stuff, that's impossible. But like, I don't even think that like it was okay to oversaturate back then. And now it's not, mm-hmm. And so I just, yeah, you know, I have no clue, uh, what we'd be doing, you know, which we were always like pretty creative and ways to make money. So I'm sure we would have figured something out, but, um, you know, like I, I definitely think that that the whole live stream thing is like a killer way that people are making money. Like, I think that code orange is who really like uh-huh. that they, they, yeah. they, fucking lit the torch and people saw yeah, they're, it dude they're they're winning quarantine 100 yeah. yeah exactly yeah that's like, the thing they're, they're actually from the area me and shane are both from uh, originally from around pittsburgh and we remember when they were code orange kids back in 2012 you know yeah. and and so it's kind of wild um to kind of see where that's going but uh but yeah i mean Overall, Andy, I mean, we're going to get you out of here, man. Uh, let me go ahead. Let us go ahead and just tell you, man, our gratitude again for you joining mm-hmm. us, uh, kind of just taking the time, really, because uh, you were an influential dude to me and Shane and a lot of other people in the Christian, uh, you know, hardcore scene. So we really thank you for that. Before we get out of here, though, why don't you go ahead and plug everything you got going on um, and just uh, let people know where they can find you and things like mm-hmm. that. And then we'll get you on out of here, buddy. Yeah. Um. What I'm doing right now is I'm on a personal fucking journey to find myself (laughs) and find uh, happiness and joy in the mundane and the everyday. And so, um, dude, I've just been posting a lot of videos. Like uh, it started on Instagram with me just like getting bored in the middle of quarantine and posting a bunch of videos of being goofy and uh, people seem to like it and they're latching onto it. So now I've started a YouTube channel. Uh, mm-hmm. The moniker for all of that is party on forever. And it's just <laughs> to remind ourselves that like life is a party and we should be enjoying it and not taking it so seriously. Um, so, I mean, like all my socials are a plea for Andy still. Um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe one day I'll let that go, but it's just so easy. <laughs> um, but if yeah. you search a plea for Andy or party on forever on anything, you'll find what I'm doing. But, uh, it's really just to try to give people a chuckle. You know, some of it is about motorcycles. Some of it's about 
uh, doing chores around the house and some of it's about eating food. Um, but my goal is, you know, that, um, people enjoy it enough that maybe I'll, like I said, I'll be able to like do a little bit of Patreon thing or something and subsidize some of my life. So that way I can, uh, continue to keep pumping it out. But you know, whether people like it or not, or give me money or not, I'm going to keep doing it because it's something I enjoy to do. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how we, you know, feel around here, you know, we have multiple podcasts we do throughout the week. So, um, we just really just like what we do. We hope that people kind of latch onto it and, and kind of do the same thing. But, uh, Shane, do you have any closing thoughts for Andy before we get on out of here? No. Um, that was, might've been the most insightful two hours I've ever experienced in my entire life. So <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, for real. Um, but Andy, I mean, thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it again. Uh, we know you don't have to do stuff for, for dudes that are just kind of starting out. So we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure you check out a plea for Andy on everything, uh, Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and then make sure that, uh, you know, check out party on forever, the, the YouTube channel for real. So, uh, yeah, Andy, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, dude. I appreciate you guys. I'm just some old fat dude that used to be halfway cool. So really it's like you guys are doing me the favor by wanting to talk to me, man. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Andy. So, uh, let's get out of here, buddy. I I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you guys. And there you have it, man. Two hours, me and Shane talked to Andy Adkins. And Shane, I mean, what's your, what's your biggest takeaway from our conversation with Andy? Um, I think just the whole like transparency about it. I think it's really a lot of the time when you see like kind of older people in the music world, there's a large level of like jadedness and kind of, um, you know, there's walls put up and all that fun stuff. And there's just a a large amount of transparency um, and a lot of honesty. I think a lot of cool stuff was shared. Yeah. And I mean, look, a lot of stuff we don't see Mm -hmm. touring bands going through and things like that. We just, we love when they come to our town and we just go and see them and we we throw money at them at the merch table and and Mm -hmm. you don't really see and get to dissect who the people are. And it was really just great. I mean, for people like me and Shane, talking to somebody like Andy Atkins is a big deal. Yeah, We both grew up as kind of in the uh, the Christian hardcore scene. And Plea was a figurehead for that, especially mm-hmm. for me, uh, yep. with a lot of their beliefs and things like that that differed a little bit from what we had been taught in church and things like that. So it was a really cool conversation mm-hmm. uh, that we had. And we hope you enjoyed I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we, we'd like to go a little bit longer, a little bit more in depth than some other shows who would just kind of be in and out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we hope to bring you a yeah. lot more of those interviews. And we got a lot, a lot of cool ones coming up. But, yeah. Shane, before we get out of here today, buddy, we can't get out of here without talking about the Heel of the Week, which I will let you do the honors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Heel of the Week, uh, for the first official 2020, first week of July, Heel of the Week. Um, mm-hmm. We got Dan Snyder from the from the uh, Washington, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Thou who shall not be named on this show yes. ever. Um, uh, Dan Snyder, yeah, the owner of the Washington NFL team, just fuck that guy for real. But anyway, continue, Shane. <laughs> but no, yeah, um, you know, uh, after years and years of of, the, of people and whether it be fan base or just people in the world, kind of calling for that name change. Um, the thing that finally got the, the the one thing that finally got him to take that seriously was uh, was a little bit of green leave in his pocket. Um, yeah, exactly. Which is and which is tragic <laughs> if we're being honest. Yeah, um, absolutely. It it's sad. Mm-hmm. It's sad that money talks like that. Yep. Six hundred fifty million known sponsorships: Nike, Pepsi, uh, and FedEx. I mean, yep. no, 
sort of three large corporations that if they said, you know what, Dan Snyder, we're pulling the plug, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are you going to do? Yep. Because you know that you know that w- when things c- kind of start shifting a certain way, you got to just you got to go with the flow. You can't yep. hold your feet down and say, you know what, I'm going to keep this name even though it's racist as fuck. Okay, <laughs> can we just take that off the table right now? And if I got to trademark that phrase, I will. Redskins, I'll- the name Redskins is racist as fuck, and I understand. Yep. I understand the three. The three, you know, Native American people that you asked aren't offended by it. And mm-hmm. they speak for an entire tribe of people. You know, I know how this works, but I don't know, man. The name has, you know, especially in recent years, and the name really never sat well with me. Yep. And I'm not even the one being, you know, depicted on it. So I can only yep. imagine um, this has got to be a win for the Native American community, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, I mean if it changes, yeah. For sure, um, absolutely. Yeah, but you sent me an interesting article. An interesting article, and and you said to me, you know, what if what if he is not going to change his name? Do you think that there's a chance that might happen? I think there's a strong chance of it. Um, which I hate. Strong chance from Shane. I and the thing that makes me think that is uh, like a handful of the the minority owners of the Redskins decided to leave. You know that they're they're trying to sell their share, which I think they own up to. I think it's three people, and it adds up to about forty percent of ownership um, of the of the franchise. And yeah. I don't think that those people leave because a name is changing. Um, to me, that makes it seem like maybe communications behind behind closed doors aren't going that great. Um, and and they're not happy with like what they're hearing. Yeah, you know yeah. they're so, not. And yeah, it's yeah. it's just wild to me because I think uh, I'm not sure if you saw it as well, but Nike also pulled all of their jersey and apparel from the Nike mm-hmm. online store. So yeah. it's like, look, dude, like, and, and I'm curious, I, like, I've no, I've never heard anything um, across the league and stuff like that. But um, I'm curious if, play, if there are players who have refused to play for the Redskins or who have, yeah. like, um, you know, who have, I don't the, think I- – so yeah, I don't think you're too off base on that, man. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you think it, it, down to its minutest detail, even people people on both sides of the aisle, people that think that, God damn it, these liberal snowflakes get offended too easily, mm-hmm. and these people, you know, on, on the left are, that are just, you know, you guys are too hard and rigid. Let's lighten up a little bit. I would think that we would all be in unison that this name needs to change. But from what I've read. And from what I've seen on social media, that might not be the case, which is just, it's mind blowing to me. Yep. You know? Yep. Because what if you had the New York whiteies? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you be like, wow, well, that you, name well, is. You, you know that the amount of uproar in that would be unbelievable. Oh, so that's what I'm saying. Like, just because something is some, just because something is the way it is when you're born and it's the way it was when you were raised and things mm-hmm. like that doesn't mean there's not wiggle room for change yep. and that's the biggest problem that i think we're facing in this country and why it's so divided is because mm-hmm. people are so staunch in their beliefs that they cannot wiggle even a little bit otherwise they look weak to whoever they're gonna look weak to which is don't even get me started on that but of course dan snyder's the heel of the week shane yep. right yep um he's charmin soft um and he if if he had any any brain cells he would change the name of that franchise. 
Yeah, and and me and Shane are in agreement here. A rare time here on the Eel Tour Collective podcast. But I mean, with that, mm-hmm. that brings us to the end of this week. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Andy Atkins, the former vocalist of A Plea for Purging. He now has a lot of things going on. Check mm-hmm. out the Party On Forever a YouTube channel and all of his social medias at a plea for Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, we hope to have him on the show again, kind of check in, you know, that's what we mean. Shane like to do. We like to check in with who we're talking to and see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure you check out all the other episodes in the archives and check out our other shows on the heel turn collective network. Uh, you got word up or bird up me and Jordan Dukes talk about a slew of topics every single Sunday. Mm-hmm. And we give it the old word up or bird up. Uh, Tuesdays here at the Heel Turn Collective Podcast. Of course, you can join me and Shane. We got a lot of cool guests coming down the line. A lot of guys that I thought I'd never talk to, and a lot of people that I think that uh, a lot of you are going to be excited to hear. So make sure you keep tabs on that. Mm-hmm. And every single Friday, me and our boy Jay Johnson talk about all elite wrestling. It's one with the undercard, the all elite edition. Make sure you check that out as well. And, I mean, we just got all kinds of stuff going on, so make sure you're liking that Facebook and make sure you're rating us on whatever you're listening to the podcast on just so we can kind of generalize feedback, you know, and and kind of give you the best content we can. So make sure you do that. Mm -hmm. And without further ado, check us out on Twitter. I'm at Collective Heel. Shane, you are at? Uh, Rain Shiley. It's R-A-N-E-S-H-I-L-E-Y. Yes, because he likes to be funny like that and swap his I'm a clever guy, yeah. Yeah, but while you're at it, make sure you check out everything that we got going on here at the Heel Turn Collective. And that's it, Shano. Until Mm -hmm. next week, my friends, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Mm -hmm. See you.